Radio Theater. In the air. Dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. You know what our call letters WGN stand for, don't you? Welcome to WGN Radio Theater. Special three-hour presentation. And your hosts, Carl Amari and Lisa Wolf. All right, about eight minutes after 10 p.m. here on the WGN Radio Theater. It is Leap Day. Or leap night. It's February 29th, Lisa. <laughs> it sure is. That only comes once every four years, and it's almost over My for vivacious co-host. It's program number 458 in the series, and we're going to be here till 3 o'clock in the morning, last time I checked. Well, I will. We'll see if you can stay awake. <laughs> and we will have six, not five, six classic radio shows for you, because the last show that we're going to air, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but we're going to start things off with Tales of the Texas Rangers, really great detective western adventure starring Joel McRae from 1950, then a comedy with Phil Harris and Alice Fay from 1949, then Orson Welles stars in The Lives of Harry Lyme, which was a prequel to the movie The Third Man. You're going to really like that. And then Ronald and Benita Coleman star in the very first episode of The General Electric Theater from 1953. Then Hour 5, Old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra, stars in Rocky Fortune. And that show only runs about like 22 minutes. So we will have time to play a quarter-hour mystery series. It's going to be very unexpected. Yeah, called The Unexpected. Oh. You just you just uh, you ruined it for me. Oh, I I thought I made but it better. That's okay. I think I made it better for yeah, you. Yeah, it's actually. a mystery series called The Unexpected. So we have a lot of classic radio shows for you, all the way till three o'clock in the morning. It's going to be a lot of fun. So stick around. We'll be back after these words. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is Just the Fact, sponsored by Cat's Pride, and we are going to be talking about 1950 because we're about to play a Tales of the Texas Rangers episode from 1950. So the first one, we're going to play a song from a Broadway show that opened on November 24th, 1950. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Any guesses on what show, Carl? Lucky. Uh, I should know this. You probably should. It ran uh, all the way through. Hello, 19- Dolly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it all went all the way through 1953. This is Luck Be a Lady Tonight from Guys and Dolls. Oh, God. Yeah, Damon Runyon. That's right. That's right. Damon That's exactly Runyon. right. Based on the that. short stories by American mm. author Damon Runyon. I of absolutely course. should have known that. So the musical has had several Broadway and London revivals, and of course a 1955 film adaptation. Yeah. Starring Marlon know. Brando, Frank oh, Sinatra. Wow. Right? Yeah. All right. All right. I'll give you a chance to okay. redeem yourself. No, musicals, I'm not too. I know. I know, but I did it anyways. So a silly putty was introduced as a toy on uh, March 6th of 1950. We're going to hear a television commercial for Silly Putty. Hello there. Hello there. You know, I've been all around this wonderful world of ours, and in all of this world, nothing else is silly putty. What is silly putty? It's true. <laughs> what is silly putty? Well, it's a real solid liquid. <laughs> if you pull it so, it'll go forever, like taffy. But it is like taffy. This is a crazy commercial, a though. Tug, 
It'll it's break. It's just right? a guy it, it, standing there holding no. the silly putty. Yeah. So this po- toy was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in 2001. Did you have silly putty Lisa, as a child? I never was without okay. silly putty. Okay. Well, I should have been a spokesperson as a kid for Silly Putty. Right. Well, here's your opportunity. That's how much I love Silly Putty. (laughs) So it used to be called Bouncing Putty or Nutty Putty. And um, when the Japanese invasion of Asia threatened America's rubber supply during World War II, that's when chemists at GE began looking for a synthetic substitute. So um, at that time, uh, they didn't know what to do with it. It sort of just was (laughs) a novelty item. But they hired some students to fill up some plastic eggs uh, with blobs of Silly Putty for Easter and they sold them for a dollar and there you go so uh, Silly Putty orders top 250,000 in three days once they were featured in uh, it was a New Yorker article talking about Silly Putty I'm telling you (laughs) <laughs> you should have been I the guy. I always had silly putty. Should have been. The, do you remember using it with newspaper yep. and taking the print off? Right. Okay. The comics. All right. Now, this comics. is one I'm positive you're going to know. Mm-hmm. This is a theme song that was a very big song in 1950. Oh, yeah. There you go. What is it? Well, the TV series was called The Third Man. That's right. It was. Uh, yeah. Third Man. Of course, this is an instrumental. Yeah, and you know who played the Third Man on television? It was not Orson Welles. No, it wasn't. It was Michael Rennie. Mm. Michael Rennie. You know, from the day the Earth stood yep. still, yep. was the star. This is a very top song in 1950. That's a zither. Yeah, that is a zither. Mm-hmm. That's right. Of course, the film uh, was a 1949 film, Third Man. It was 11 weeks at number one on mm-hmm. the U.S. charts. And uh, the success of this song was a trend in releasing film theme musicals as singles. Yeah, wow. So, great tune. Very cool, Lisa. Yep, great, Thank great you for all of that. 1950. 1950. And that is the year we're going to uh, play our Tales of the Texas Rangers episode from. Uh, don't forget, we have a text in line, 312-981-7200. We love getting your texts. And uh, just in case you don't know this, we are here every single Saturday night for five, five hours. hours. Yeah, from 10 p.m. till 3 o'clock in the morning. And we play all these great radio shows, you know, Jack Benny and The Shadow and Boston Blackie and The Whistler and Tales of the Texas Rangers. Now, this series was a radio western police series set in the 1950s, not the 1800s. Now, a lot of the westerns that we air, you know, were set in the 1800s, not this one. Even though it was a western, it was set in modern day. It was created by Stacy Keach Sr., and it aired on NBC Radio from 1950 to 1952, and it starred Joel McRae as Texas Ranger Jace Pearson. He used the latest scientific techniques to bring criminals to justice. It was a procedural drama, and in many ways, it was similar to Dragnet, but with a Western flavor. And Keach and Jack Webb, Lisa, actually were good friends, and they officed together. And Stacy Keach saw how great Dragnet was doing, and so they sort of collaborated together and he then launched Tales of the Texas Rangers. It was not as successful as Dragnet, but it did very well. And there was a consultant on the show called Captain Manuel T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez. He was said to have killed 31 men during his 30-year career as a Texas Ranger. (laughs) 
That's like itchy a itchy trigger a year. finger. That's more than a man yeah, a year. Itchy trigger <laughs> finger. <laughs> and uh, there was a total of 95 radio broadcasts produced. And then there was a television series that uh, lasted a couple of years uh, in 1958. But right now it's time for a radio episode called Hanging by a Thread, November 26th, 1950. We're going to listen to this uninterrupted. Here is Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers. The National Broadcasting Company presents Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers. Tonight, transcribed from Hollywood, another authentic reenactment of a case from the files of the Texas Rangers. Tales of the Texas Rangers, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. Texas, more than 260,000 square miles, and 50 men who make up the most famous and oldest law enforcement body in North America. of the Texas Rangers come these stories based on fact. Only names, dates, and places are fictitious for obvious reasons. The events themselves are a matter of record. Case for tonight, hanging by a thread. At 9.15 on the morning of May 5th, 1947, the telephone rang in the sheriff's office in the little town of Finney, Texas. Sheriff Hanson answered it. Sheriff's office, Hanson speaking. Sheriff, this is George Hawks. How are you, George? What can I do for you? Nothing, now. Nobody can. Uh, how's that? I just called to tell you I'm going to kill myself. What did you say? You heard me. It'll take you 20 minutes to get out to my place. By that time, I'll be dead. Now, now, wait a, wait a minute, George. What? Hello? Hello? George? Uh, operator? Operator? Yes, sir. Oh, this is the sheriff. That caller just came in here. Where was it from? One moment, Sheriff. Uh, if this is someone's idea of a practical Hello, general... Sheriff. Yes? yes? That call was placed from 317 out on Gum Creek Road, the residence of Mr. George Hall. <laughs> The sheriff raced out to the Hawks Ranch and found George Hawks dead, hanging in the barn. Then he made another discovery which prompted him to put in a call to the Texas Rangers. Ranger Jace Pearson was assigned to the case and drove to the Hawks Ranch to meet Sheriff Hanson. Jace, am I glad to see you. Howdy, Sheriff. It's been a long time. Yeah, a month of Sundays. I hope I didn't call you down here for nothing, Jace, but this looks mighty fishy to me. So I want you to take a look at the body. Hasn't been taken down yet? No, I put in a call to the coroner, but he was out somewhere. I left a message for him to come out here as soon as they could locate him. How'd you find out about the body, Sheriff? I got a phone call, Jace, about 9.15. Said it was George Hawks and he was going to kill himself. I thought maybe it was some joker, so I traced the call. And? It came from here all right. So I drove out fast as I could, but George was dead. Hanging by the neck in the barn. No pulse. 
Body's still warm. Sheriff, I know you didn't call me down here to investigate a routine suicide. What's the catch? Well, I'm getting all that. Come on the barn. This is just the way he was when I found him. You notice that's a wire he's hanging from, not a rope. Yeah. Cut off the clothesline, probably. Yeah. How do you know? Guest. I saw the clothesline had been cut, part of a dragon on the ground in the yard. <laughs> you rangers don't miss much, do you? Not if we can help it, Sheriff. Well, I want to show you something I found. Look at this. Right under the body. Mm, it's an oil drum. Right. And the exact position I found it in. On its side. Now you'll notice, Jace, that it's the only thing near enough that George could have stood on while he put the wire around his neck. Here's the rim marks where it stood on the straw before it was tipped over. Yeah, only he didn't stand on it. Look at this end of the drum. Thick with dust. Hmm. Now look at the other end. Dusty, too. Jace is not a sign of a footprint on either end of this oil drum. You're right, Sheriff. He couldn't have climbed up in the loft and jumped, or that wire would have taken his head off. Yeah, that's what I figured, and that's why I called you. What about fingerprints? Nope. Couldn't find any, just a few smears. What does it spell to you, Jace? Just one word, and an unpleasant one. Murder. my camera out of the car and took pictures of the body. And we took down the broken clothesline and nosed around for more evidence. The sheriff went up to look over the house while I combed the barn. How'd you make out up at the house, Sheriff? Nothing, Chase. Absolutely nothing. No note from George. Everything tidy. No sign of a struggle. Funny nobody's around. Who would be ordinarily? His wife, Millie. One of the hands. He had two men working for him last I heard. How are you coming, Jason? I found a couple of things, but not the thing I want. What's that? The tool that was used to cut the wire he's hanging on. All I found in the barn here was this pair of rusty pliers. Well, couldn't they have been used to cut it? No, Sheriff, they wouldn't cut butter. Mm -hmm. Besides, the cut's too clean. How about footprints? No luck yet. But I think I've found what the killer stood on to string the body up. What? The stepladder. I found it under the tool bench. Been used lately. Marks in the dust where it had been dragged out and then pushed back. What are you fixing to do, Jace? Going up the ladder and take a look at the beam where the wire's looped over. Here, here. I'd better hold it for you. It's pretty rickety. Thanks. Find something? I think so. What is it, Jace? Look at this. Stuck on a splinter where the wire went over the beam. It's a piece of black thread. Yeah, black wool thread. <laughs> well, are you a string saver, Jace? In a case like this, yes. Let's take a look outside. What about a motive, Sheriff? For suicide or murder? Either. Uh, can't think of a one offhand. George was a pretty normal guy, happily married. Didn't have any enemies that I know. How about those two hands you mentioned? Well, this new one, Brad Johnson, been working for George about six months. Only met him a couple of times. Seemed to be all right. In a quiet sort of way. And the other? <laughs> Old Tom. Oh, he's okay. Drinks a lot. George used to fire him regular and then take him back when he sobered up. There's no good footprints in the yard here. Nope. Ground's packed pretty hard. Oh, Sheriff. Huh? Car coming up the house. Is that the corner? That? Uh, 
Well, no, that looks like... Well, sure, that's George Hawk's car. That's Millie driving it. Mrs. Hawks. Come on. We'll have to tell her, Sheriff. This is the only part of the job I really hate. Yeah, I know, Jace. Sheriff, what are you doing out this way? And... Well, morning, Mrs. Hawks. This is Ranger Pearson. Howdy, ma'am. Ranger? What's happened? What's the matter? I'm sorry to have to tell you, Millie. But George... Something happened to George? Yes. He's dead. Oh, no. We'll take you to the house. No. I I can't believe he'd do it. Mrs. Hawks, when did you last see your husband? Just a few hours ago at breakfast. How did he appear at breakfast? I mean, was anything wrong? Was he upset about anything? Well, yes, there was a big fight at breakfast. I never seen George get some head. A fight? Between you and your husband? Well, all four of us went on it. Old Tom and Brad was there, too. They're the hired hands. How did it start? I cooked breakfast for the four of us, like I always do. Old Tom was late, so we'd started to eat. When we were about through, old Tom came staggering in. He was half drunk. Again, huh? Yes, Sheriff, again. Then he and George had this big row, and George fired him for being drunk. Go on. Old Tom was fighting mad. He gets mean when he's been drinking. He started making all kinds of wild accusations. What kind of accusations, Mrs. Hawks? Lies, Ranger. All of them lies. He said he wouldn't have been drunk if Brad hadn't bought liquor for him. Brad? Well, that's what he claimed. Said Brad got him drunk on purpose, so he... Oh, it was awful. So he could what? Well, it's a lie, Ranger. What did he say, Mrs. Hawks? Well, old Tom said to Brad... I wouldn't be drunk if you didn't buy me the stuff. You're always trying to get me out of the way so I won't see you... So I won't see you playing up to the boss's wife. Then what happened? Well, Tom left. and My husband started swearing and threatening Brad, accusing him of what Tom said. Brad said it was lying, and then George threw some money in his face and told him to get off the place that he was fired, too. What did Brad do? I thought for a minute he was going to hit George, but he didn't. He went outside, and a few minutes later I heard his car start, and he drove away... By this time, George was in a terrible rage. He even threatened to kill me. So I grabbed the car keys and ran. Did he ask you where you were going? Yes, he did, Ranger. I told him I was going in town to see Mr. Harris, the lawyer, see about getting a divorce. What time did you leave? About 8.30. Ranger, you said you found him hanging in the barn. What if it was suicide? Why are you asking me all these questions? Because I don't think it was suicide, Mrs. Hawks. I think it was murder. After the coroner and the doctor arrived, the sheriff borrowed a horse from the corral, I got charcoal out of the trailer, and we headed for Tom's shack up in the hills. There it is, Jace, just around those rocks. At Tom's horse, Sheriff, grazing out back? Yep. He's around someplace. Up, charcoal. Yes. I just can't see old Tom as a killer, Jace. He ain't the type. Huntsville's full of them, Sheriff. Killers who aren't the type. Oh, oh, oh charcoal. Oh, boy. Let's try the front door. Okay. All right, Tom. Open up. He's not here, Jace. I can see through the window. Shack's empty. What the... Somebody's shooting close by. Maybe Tom. That shot came from back up in that drawer. Come on, Sheriff. There he is. 
Back by that clump of trees. Is that Tom? Sure is. Hey, he's running toward the trees. Hold it, Tom. There we are. I'll put one over his head. Ah. Yeah, he's starving. See what he's wearing, Chase? Yeah. Black sweater. Now, what's all the commotion? All right, Tom. Throw down that rifle. Sure. Sure, Ranger. But, uh, what for? Why didn't you stop when I told you to? Well, to tell the truth, Ranger, I didn't hear you. I'm kind of deaf. I heard you shot, though. Yeah, that's right, Jace. He's hard of hearing. What's that, sir? Oh, never mind. Why'd you shoot at us, Tom? Shoot at you? Why, I never did no such thing. What were you doing, then? Ain't no law against a man killing himself a rabbit for supper. All right. Get his rifle, Sheriff. Let's go. Huh? Where to? To your shack first. We're going to have a long talk about George Hawks. I'll tell you, Ranger, I didn't know George was dead until you told me a minute ago. Uh, what call would I have to kill him? If he was killed, he was my friend. You don't seem very clear about what happened this morning, Tom. Well, I... I was a bit foggy. I had me a couple of nips. But I do remember George getting mad and firing me. What happened after that? Well, I took a few more out of the bottle in my saddlebag. I don't remember much after that. I must have rode up here and fell asleep. Woke up a while ago. I was hungry and I went out to get me a rabbit. Tell me, Tom. Do you often draw a blank when you've been drinking? Do, do I what, Ranger? Have a blank space. Do things you don't remember anything about later. Oh, I suppose I have once or two. Hey, wait a minute. I didn't do it. I couldn't have killed George. He was my friend. These your wire cutters on the table, Tom? Oh, yeah, they are. I'll take them. And I think you'd better come along to town with us. You are listening to Tales of the Texas Rangers, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson at our new Sunday time. We hope that our many friends who have listened to us at the earlier hour will continue to be with us each Sunday. And for those of you who are hearing our program for the first time, we extend a warm and cordial welcome and invite you to be with us each Sunday from now on. And now we continue with tonight's case, Hanging by a Thread. An authentic story from the files of the Texas Rangers. The finger was pointing straight at Tom. When we got back to the Hawks Ranch, there was a man in the back lot feeding the hogs. It was Brad Johnson, the third witness at the breakfast fight. While the sheriff took Tom into town, I got Brad's version of what happened. And then he threw the money in my face, Ranger. Thirty dollars. Told me I was fired. I wanted to hit him, but I didn't. Then what, Brad? Then I got my duffel bag, threw it in my car, and drove off. Where'd you go? To Finney. Drove around town for a few minutes, and then I went to the White Spot Cafe and had a cup of coffee. What time was this? When I was in the cafe? Oh, about 9.30, I guess. Why'd you come back here? Well, somebody in town said that George had killed himself and that the coroner was on his way out here. So? Well, I figured if it was true, there wouldn't be anybody to do the chores. He fired old Tom, too. And Mrs. Hawks always treated me so friendly. Well, so I come out to do what I could. Yeah, very nice of you. Tell me, Brad, 
Is there anything between you and Mrs. Hawks? No, sir. That's a lie, Ranger. Never even spoke to each other except at mealtimes or say good morning. What are you planning to do now? Well, I don't know. Help Mrs. Hawks till she can get somebody, I reckon. I see. Well, I gotta be moseying along. Oh, uh, don't leave town without letting me know. Oh, I, I won't, Ranger. I'll be around. I got the evidence off to Austin and then went to the White Spot Cafe. Brad had been seen there at 9.30, and Mrs. Hawks had been with her lawyer half an hour before. I radioed headquarters that I was staying over in Finney, and about 9 that night, I got a phone call. Hello? Jace, Captain Stinson. I've got the report on that stuff you sent in today. You got a pencil? Sure have, Captain. Shoot. On that black wool sweater, the thread you sent in the envelope matched all right. It's definitely off the sweater. How about the wire cutters? I'm afraid I got a disappointment for you there, Jase. They couldn't get a match. I'm afraid the murder wire wasn't cut with the tool you sent. Are you sure, Captain? The boys in the lab are. They made sample cuts with every millimeter of those blades and couldn't match up a single one with a murder wire. Oh. What kind of a fix does that put you in, Jase? I'm not sure. Well, thanks, Captain. I'll keep in touch with you. All right, Jase. Good luck. going to need more than luck. Things were really getting tangled up. It was about 4 a.m. when I finally dozed off trying to dope it out. Then at 8.30, I met the sheriff in his office. Well, you look like you've been through the ring at Jay's. Hotel bed's too hard for you. No, but I didn't get much sleep trying to figure this Hawks thing out. Looks like we'll have to let old Tom go, Sheriff. Why? What's up? The lab says Tom's cutters didn't cut that wire. They didn't? No. Of course, old Tom could have used other cutters, but in his stupor, I doubt if he'd be that clever. Uh, well, I hate to complicate things more than they are, Jason. What do you mean? Karna called a little while ago. He sent in his report over with one of my deputies. Should have been here by now. His verdict is suicide. Suicide? Oh, that doesn't make sense. No, apparently does to him. We'll know when the report gets here. Yeah. George Hawks, deceased. Climbed up a stepladder, put a wire around his neck, and then placed the ladder neatly under a workbench 12 feet away. <laughs> My dusty oil drum snoring things up, Jason. Considerable. Morning, Sheriff. Mm. Howdy, Ranger. Hi. Morning, Joe. Do you get it? Yep. I had to wait while the car on the side. Here it is. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Anything more I can do, Sheriff? Uh, no, not right now. Well, I'll go get me some breakfast then. Uh, let's see. No marks of violence on the victim's body. Autopsy disclosed no brain injury. Death probably caused by strangulation. Coroner's conclusion, suicide. Signed, G. Parker Coroner. Hmm? There it is, Jace. It couldn't be. No, here's something from the doctor. I examined the body at 11.30 a.m., it is my opinion the death occurred approximately three hours previously. I'm in... Hey, wait a minute, Sheriff. Well, what is it? That'd make it about 8.30 when George died. What time did you say he called you? At 9.15. Great suffering! Sheriff, are you sure it was George who called? Well, now that you mention it, I, I'm not sure. Said he was George. Well, could it have been somebody else? Yeah, I suppose so. It's beginning to piece together, Sheriff. Whoever it was could have killed George, then called you and tried to sound like him. To establish an alibi. Exactly. And then pop up someplace else a few minutes later. Like the White Spot Cafe. I'll call you later. Well, where are you going, Chase? Back to the Hawks Ranch. <laughs>
up to the ranch, Brad Johnson was running water into the big trough near the barn. Well, hi, Ranger. What brings you out this way? I want to talk to Mrs. Hawks. We're releasing Tom. Coroner's report came in a few minutes ago. Suicide. Is she around? Why, sure, she's up in the house. Okay. Oh, I... I just happened to think. Charcoal, my horse here in the trailer, hasn't had a square meal since I left headquarters yesterday. Is there some hay around that I could give him? Why, sure, Ranger. Some fresh bale just inside the barn there helps sell. Thanks. I'll be glad to pay for it. No, no, forget it. I'm sure Mrs. Hawks wouldn't mind. Oh, uh, have you got something to open one with? Why, sure. Here. Here's my cutters. I took the cutters into the barn and made some cuts on a wire sample. After I gave the cutters back to Brad and fed charcoal, I spoke briefly with Mrs. Hawks, and then I tore out for the lab in Austin. By one o'clock, I got the results. Here it is, Jace. Take a look. The wires match, Johnny? See for yourself. That dual microscope never lied to me yet. The left one's the murder wire. The one on the right is one of the samples you brought in. That's it. Well, look at those striations. It's a perfect match. Thanks, Johnny. Take care of this stuff. Got to get back to Finney pronto. Oh, Will you do me a favor? Sure, Jace. Call the sheriff at Finney. Tell him I'm on my way and I got something hot. I'll be there in two hours. Well, Jace, you sure made good time. What'd you find out? We got positive proof the murder wire was cut with Brad Johnson's cutters. Brad's? You gonna pick him up? Not right yet, Sheriff. Why not? We only know that Brad's cutters were used. We don't know he used them. We got to be sure. What are your plans, Jace? I've been thinking. Those stories that Mrs. Hawks and Brad told me, they were alike, all right. Too much alike. What do you mean? A couple of times they used the exact phrases. Mm -hmm. What about Tom and the black thread? We'll keep an eye on him, but I think he's clean. He could have caught his sleeve on that beam doing anything, pitching hay or anything. Yeah, he could have. Well, uh, what do we do now? Got to catch him alone, Brad and Mrs. Hawks. When they don't know anybody's around, we got to hear what they say to each other. Maybe after the funeral. It's this afternoon, four o'clock. You know where it's being held, Sheriff? Sure, out of the ranch. Be a graveside ceremony. Where's the cemetery? Clear over on the other side of town from the Hawks' place. It'll take them a while to get over there and back. Sheriff, while they're at the cemetery, you and I are going to the ranch and fix up a little surprise. Be all right for that one behind the window shade. Why three microphones, Jace? Wouldn't one do? Not if they wander around the house while they're talking, Sheriff. I want to hear everything. Yeah, but how you know that Brad and Mrs. Hawks will talk? How do you know they'll even come into the house? I don't know, Sheriff. I'm guessing. And my guess is that after the funeral's over, somebody's going to let his hair down. Hey, it's almost five, Jace. They'll be coming back soon. I'm finished in here, Sheriff. Now all we have to do is string the wire to the stakeout. Come on. We'd hidden my car in a lane down the road and set up our equipment at a clump of trees close to the house. Three neighbors' cars drove up, then Brad's. We watched him as he fed the stock. About sundown, the last of the guests left the house. There go the last of them, Sheriff. Can you see Brad? He's been on the barn the last few minutes. Hmm. There he is, Jace, heading for the house. Good. Put on your earphones, Sheriff. I want you to hear this, too. There he goes, up on the porch. Yeah. Shh. 
pretty scared of Bob, baby. Everything worked out fine. Oh, take me away with you, Brad, now, tonight. Millie, I can't do that. You know it. Why not? Why can't you? Well, the plan, baby. We gotta follow the plan. Now, look, if we went away together now, there'd never be no time. We gotta let it go. Brad, I can't spend another night in this house. Not alone. I can keep seeing his face. You holding him. That look of his when I put the pillow over his face. I can't stand it. I can't Shut up. Look, you, I put a lot of hard work on us. Our alibi's got him clear off the trail. I'm not gonna let him get back on, you hear? All right, Sheriff. I've heard enough. Let's take him. You cover the back, Sheriff. I'll take the front. Okay, Jason. All right. All right, in there. Open up. Ranger Pearson, open up. What do you want? You know what I want, Brad Johnson. Well, he's not here. I know different. Okay, Sheriff, let's search the house. All right, Jace. I don't know what this is all about. You'll find out. He's not in the kitchen, Jace. All right, Sheriff, work this way. Granger, what's the meaning of this? He's not in the back of the house, Jace. Maybe he's... What was that? He was upstairs, Sheriff. Sounds like he jumped from up there. Come on. Don't see him. He didn't run for his car. Couldn't have gone far. Maybe he hit for the highway. Let's... What's that? Chickens in the barn. Something scared them, and I think I know what. Come on. If we play this right, we've got them trapped. I know you're in there, Brad. Come on out. All right. Darkest pitch in there, Jason. Turn on your flashlight, Sheriff. Take the other side. I'll look behind those. Okay. Hey! What is it, Sheriff? Pitchfork! Threw it from the loft! He hit me! You hurt bad? Don't think so. My shoulder. Here, give me your flashlight, Sheriff. All right, Brad. I'm coming up. No! No, don't come up. I'm coming down. Come out where we can see you, then. With your hands up! Jace, he's jumping! Oh! Jace! You all right? Yeah. Yeah, I... Fell on his back, hit his head when I hit him. Is he dead? No. No, Sheriff, he's not dead. But I can't say he won't be, though, when the state gets through with him. After Mildred Hawks turned state's witness, Brad Johnson confessed to the murder of his employer. For her part in the crime, Mildred Hawks received a sentence of 50 years in a women's prison at Huntsville. Johnson's sentence, death in the electric chair. And now, here again is the star of our show, Joel McRae. While most of the mail that comes to us here at Tales of the Texas Rangers is written by grown-ups, the youngsters have their questions, too. Tonight, I'd like to read you a postcard from a boy in Newark, New Jersey. It says, Dear Mr. McRae, I am nine years old. Me and my friend Tony was talking about being Texas Rangers when we grow up. How do you go about getting that job? Your friend, Tommy Cook. Well, Tommy, a lot of people have asked us that same question recently, and I guess maybe it's high time for us to tell them. 
First, a ranger has to serve at least 10 years as an outstanding police officer. Then he may compete with others for the job. If he's selected, he works under the wing of a ranger captain for at least six months, and then he's put out in the field with other seasoned rangers for a year and a half. By this time, he is, or he isn't, a true Texas ranger. And Tommy, your card's being sent to Colonel Homer Garrison, Jr., chief of the Texas Rangers. Good luck. Good night. Next week, Joel McRae in another authentic reenactment of a case from the files of the Texas Rangers. Joel McRae is currently seen starring in the Universal International Technicolor production, Saddle Trent. Tonight's cast included Tony Barrett, Byron Kane, Betty Lou Gerson, Jeff Corey, and Wally Mayer. This story was transcribed and adapted by Andrew McBroom, and the program was produced and directed by Stacy Keach. This is Hal Gibney speaking. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Tuesday nights are bright with comedy on NBC. Start off the evening with Baby Snooks. Hear Fibber McGee and Molly of 79 Wistful Vista. Listen as Art Linkletter proves that people are funny and laugh with Bob Hope and his gang. It's truly fine entertainment every Tuesday night. So be sure to listen for Baby Snooks, Fibber McGee and Molly, People Are Funny, and Bob Hope. That is Tales of the Texas Rangers from November 26, 1950, Hanging by a Thread. Joel McRae, starring in that program, uh, created, produced, and directed by Stacy Keach. Now, when you think about Stacy Keach, you think of the actor who played Mike Hammer, and he was in a lot of movies and things. Well, no, this was his dad, Stacy Keach Sr., that created the series. And, you know, Stacy, of course, was the host of our Twilight Zone series and other things like that. He Good also um, does a lot of theater right here at Goodman Theater. Yeah, he does. And he told me he remembers his dad taking him to some of these recording sessions and getting to meet, you know, Betty Lou Gearson and Jeff Corey, Wally Mayer, Tony Barrett. He, you know, when I mentioned those names, he was like, oh, yeah, I met all those people as a kid going to the studio at NBC recording. This was a transcribed program. It wasn't in front of a live audience. And, uh, yeah, it was great, you know, to, uh, going behind the scenes and seeing his dad work. Sure. And so nice that he remembers that and can share yeah. the memories. And his dad was a very nice man. He was actually Mr. Birdseye in the Birdseye, in Birdseye? TV commercials. Oh, yeah. And then he was also on Get Smart. He was the uh, like the professor on Get Smart. So he was an actor, too. Yeah. But he was a producer, director of this, uh, this radio series. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more right here on the WGN Radio Theater. Next hour, Phil Harris and Alice Faye, Lisa. It's going to be a lot of fun, plus just the facts, right? We'll be here. Stay with us. All right, stay with us right here on WGN.
Man, all those trumpet lessons I took paid off, huh? All those brass instruments. Can you play I mean, them? Listen to me there. Oh, you sound good. Listen. I've got the piano covered on my end. WGN Radio Theater every Saturday, and uh, we're here till 3 o'clock. Yeah. Start at 10. We're here till 3. We play five hours worth of your favorite uh, classic radio shows. We gave you some Just the Facts, too, which we'll do uh, in this hour. Uh, and the facts are going to be about 1949, right? Yes, they sure are. Because we have Phil Harris and Alice Faye. And I think this is really interesting. Your mother, mm-hmm. is her name is Alice, and her middle name is Faye. Right. Well, not a coincidence. She was named No, what's, co- what's a coincidence about it Faye. is we didn't, obviously, we weren't even born yet when this happened. Right. Because okay, your mother is a little older than you. A little bit. Yeah, just a little older than you. And your grandmother and grandfather named her Alice Faye. That's true. After Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Yes. And here we and are today talking are. about Alice That's Faye. That's kind of, when you think about it, it's, it's kind, kind of what? It's kind of like serendipitous. It could be. That's a pretty big word, huh? That's how many good. syllables is that? Five. I don't know how you do that. That's, I have to put you know, my hand on my chin. <laughs> it's a talent. Serendipitous. Yeah, that's five. Yeah, it's five. In this hour, Phil Harris and Alice Faye. It's going to be a lot of fun. After that, the lives of Harry Lime with Orson Welles, then the General Electric Theater. In the very first episode from that series. And then Rocky Fortune with Frank Sinatra and The Unexpected. It's all coming your way. But first, these words here on WGN. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is our Just the Facts segment, sponsored by Cat's Pride. We're going to be talking about 1949, as we've got Phil Harris and Alice Faye show coming up. And it was all taken place, or I guess it all aired in 1949. Well, this particular radio show did. (laughs) It sure did. And um, in 1949, Charles Lubin's small chain of community bake shops became the kitchens of what? (sighs) What is it called? Charles, Charles Lubin Charles had a small Lubin. chain of community bake shops. Bake shop, Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> Which he named after his daughter and called it the Kitchens of... I don't know. Let's hear a commercial. Everybody doesn't like something, but nobody doesn't like Sara Lee. Oh. Remember this? Sara Lee started in 1949? Uh, well, he's... He, it became the kitchens of Sarah Lee, named after his daughter. Now, Sarah Lee was eight years old mm-hmm. when he decided to name his new line of cheesecake after his daughter. Mm. So his company was purchased in 1956 by Consolidated Foods, and then in 85, they changed its name to Sarah Lee Corporation. You know what? I love Sarah Lee. Well, who doesn't? Nobody My doesn't gosh. like Sarah Lee. That's have, the name. You put a Sarah Lee in front of me. <laughs> a Sarah Lee, <laughs> like I, any particular I, I, item? I, I will lose my, my mind. Well, I'll keep that in mind for your birthday. Mm-hmm. And her father told her that the product had to be perfect because he was naming it after her. Oh, that's, that's sweet. his daughter. Very sweet. I know. Okay, so 19... 19- Making me hungry. I, I, I don't think it takes much, Carl. In 1949, the 7-inch 45 RPM record was released March 31st. That was in 1949 So by the single, the 7-inch? The 7-inch. So yeah. that was um, by RCA Victor yeah. as the smaller, 
more durable, more higher fidelity replacement of the 78 RPM disc. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the first ones were monaural. Yep. They had recordings on both sides of the disc. Mm-hmm. And the first large commercial release on the disc was what song? Mm, um, White Christmas? Let's hear it. A- you're adorable. A You're Adorable by you're Perry so Como. Beautiful. Wow. You're a cutie full of charms. D. You're a darling and e. you're excited. You know what's great about this song? It has the alphabet. You, it's educational. You learn the alphabet. <laughs> I along told you, with, it has the alphabet. Along with enjoying the music. I think there are lots of moms and dads who have sung mm-hmm. this song to their babies. Probably. So 1949, are you ready? This is a good one for you, Carl. Mm-hmm. Men started wearing Argyle socks thanks to Brooks Brothers. Mm, so really? Argyle socks first became popular in 1949 when the president of Brooks Brothers, his name was John Clark Wood, brought them to the States for a casual look. Mm-hmm. So he was he learned about the pattern. He was on a golf tournament in Scotland. And I guess they... There's a lot of golfing in There's Scotland. a lot of golf, and there's Argyle patterns on oh, the yeah. footwear there. Sure. So he brought the idea back for casual socks for men, and today I bet you wear Argyle socks. I bet you I don't. I bet you you do. Oh, wait. Yeah, you might have gotten me some, I right? might have. Are they? Well, I have them on right now. Let me Are see these Argyle? socks. Let me see. Are those Argyle? No, that's no, not Argyle. No, those aren't. No. But you have Argyle socks. Okay, very Most cool. men do. 1949, 1949. Huh? It was very a big cool. year for socks. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> thanks, Appreciate Carl. just the facts there. Don't forget, we have a text in line, 312-981-7200. We love to get your text, and we're going to be answering some texts in this uh, while we play this uh, episode of Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Um, this was a great comedy series. It ran on NBC Radio from 1948 until 1954, and it starred real-life husband and wife, Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Now, Harris had become known to radio audiences as the band leader turned member of the Jack Benny program. He literally started as Jack's band member, and then Jack discovered him, really, you know, thought, this guy's funny, let's put him on, you know, gave him a lot of jokes and things. And then Alice, she was a singing star in her own right and also a movie star. They teamed up to host a musical variety show called the Fitch Bandwagon. But then in 1948, that series was totally retooled into a full-on situation comedy with Harris and Faye playing fictionalized versions of themselves as a working showbiz couple raising their two daughters, Phyllis and Alice. A little bit like how Jack Benny, you know, was. He played himself, a fictionalized version of himself, um... And they did that with other shows, too. Dennis Day had a show. These were spinoffs of the Jack Benny program. Then Phil's best friend on the show was Frankie Remley, played by veteran actor, producer, director, Elliot Lewis. Very talented guy. Frankie was Phil's left-handed guitar player in Phil's band. Always got him into trouble. And then there was Walter Tetley, best known as Leroy on The Great Gildersleeve. He played obnoxious grocery delivery boy Julius Abruzzo, who uh, served as a foil for Phil. And then there was Gail Gordon, you know, Lucille Ball's foil for many, many years. He played Mr. Scott, president of the Rexall Drug Company, which is the sponsor of the show. So we have a broadcast from May 8th, 1949. It's sponsored by Rexall. 
I don't think there's any more Rexalls. Around. I don't think so. Yeah, it's all it's all so Walgreens, Walgreens and, and, CVS. and CVS, and then um, there's also Rite Aids. There's mm-hmm. Rite Aids too, but there's I don't think there's any more Rexall. Uh, on this uh, show, they uh, it's it's a Mother's Day. It's a Mother's Day program, so it's a lot of fun. Let's tune this in. Here's uh, uh, uninterrupted the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show. Good health to all from Rexall. Yes, it's Sunday. Time for the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Presented by the makers of Rexall Drug Products and 10,000 independent Rexall Family Druggists. Good evening. This is your Rexall Family Druggist, taking a little time from behind the prescription counter this Sunday evening to speak for all 10,000 of us. The 10,000 independent druggists who have added the word Rexall to our own store names. You can always tell us by the orange and blue Rexall sign on our windows. The sign means that we carry the 2,000 or more drug products made by the Rexall Drug Company. They range all the way from aspirin to penicillin, and they're as fine and pure and dependable as science can make them. We independent druggists recommend them to our customers because we know you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Ann Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Today is Mother's Day, and Phil doesn't have anything for Alice. He intended to buy her something very nice, but... Well, let's go back two days. Alice and Phil are downtown shopping. Hey, Alice, let's go home. I'm tired of looking in shop windows and walking up... Oh, Phil, just look at that stunning two-piece French bathing suit. Well, I'll look, but I ain't gonna... Ooh, la, la. Like it? Viva la France and cherchez my femme. All right, take it easy, Father. Simmer down. I just wanted to know how you liked it. I think it's very seductive. <laughs> then why don't you go in and buy it? Yeah, maybe I'll... Nah, I'll stick to my Hawaiian trunks. <laughs> Bill, I thought you might buy it for... Well, uh... For who? Oh, I might as well tell you. Sunday is Mother's Day, and it would make a wonderful gift. Oh, don't be silly. My mother ain't the type for that. <laughs> Phil, I was suggesting that you buy it for me. You? Now, wait a minute. I wouldn't let my wife wear one of them things. Why not? Well, it's too scanty. You're... you're... Well, you're liable to catch cold. Huh? <laughs> I'm just thinking of your health, dear. You need something warmer. Well, then how about buying me that full-length mink coat we saw? That ought to keep me warm. That'd keep you too warm. (laughs) You'd only perspire and run a temperature. Hmm. There must be a healthy present he can buy me. Hey, Doc, how about a diamond bracelet? Honey, diamond bracelets, fur coats, take it easy. I don't have that kind of cabbage. Well... 
If you're a little short, I'll help you out. (laughs) I'll tell you what, Phil, I'll give you an advance on your allowance. (laughs) No, thank you. I have a stipend. (laughs) Now, let me see. I got 20, 40, 60, 70. Hey, Bud, could you spare five bucks for a guy who needs a curly? (laughs) Hello, Frankie. Oh, hello, Alice. I didn't recognize you. Wait a minute, Remy. What's the idea of panhandling? (laughs) Please, I am not panhandling. I happen to be soliciting financial aid for a worthy people. (laughs) Who? The INLGPNRs. Oh, the (laughs) Anilkapers. Fine race of people. Frankie, who on earth are the INLGPNRs? The Institute for Needy Left-Handed Guitar Players named Remley. Oh, it's for you, huh? Alice, he's trying to raise money to pay his bookie. He owes him $134. Curly, you're maligning me. (laughs) Just trying to raise enough money to send my dear old mom a gift for Mother's Day. Oh, that's sweet, Frankie. What are you going to send her? A shawl, a knitting bag, or... No, no, I have a sentimental custom. I send her money, a dollar for every year of her life. Oh, now, Frankie, that's a wonderful idea, and I'll lend you the money... How old is your mother? 134. <laughs> Plus interest. Ah, <laughs> uh, so it is your bookie. I was right the first time. Oh, Remley, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Forgetting your mother on Mother's Day. I didn't forget her. I already sent her something. Did you get something for Alice? No, but, but I'm going to right now. Look, Alice, you run along and I'm... You go on home and I'm going to stay downtown and I'm going to shop for your present. All right, honey. See you later. Okay. Hey, Remley. Hmm? She's a sweet hunk of stuff, boy. <laughs> sure wish I knew what to get her. Isn't there something she expressed a desire for? Yeah. Yeah, she liked that mink coat in the window there, but it cost $3,000. Well, yeah, if you buy it in a swanky store like that, but not if you buy it wholesale. <laughs> Well, where can I get it home? <laughs> What'd you say? I said, I don't know if I want you to answer this or not. Why you try it? I said, where can I get it wholesale? I happen to know a guy. I know a guy. I'm going to see you later. No, wait a minute. Come here, Curly. Look. I don't know this guy personally, but they say he's a reputable furrier. Uh-huh. His name is I.J. Grogan. <laughs> At least look at his furs if you don't like him. You don't have to buy him. True. All right, I'll look. Come on, let's go. Hey, Remley. Hmm? Is Grogan's place in this ritzy neighborhood? Oh, yeah, it's just off the street. <laughs> Come on, Curly, we turn right in here. Okay, I'll get... Wait a minute. Hmm? What are we going up this dark alley for? Well, the store is out of the high rent district. <laughs> See, it's along here someplace. Hey, Bud, you want to buy a fur coat? 
Oh, here's Grogan's fur shop hay now. He has his fur shop right out here in the open. Yeah, no overhead. Yeah, uh, Mr. Grogan, we're here to look at some mink coats. Well, see, so you come to the right place. I got a couple hanging right here on the fence. <laughs> Now, here's a beautiful belt. I can let you have it for 500. Now, just feel this fur. Go ahead, stroke it. Okay. Hey, this feels nice and soft and... Sounds like a good mink. <laughs> Cut it out, will you? It ain't no mink, it's a cat. In that case, I'll let you have it for two fifty. Wait a minute. Frankie, let's get out of here. I've seen this guy in a cowboy hat selling radios all the time. <laughs> I don't want to do no business up no alley. I want to go to a regular store. Well, now, why don't you say so? Follow me into my shop. Careful, now you watch your step, man. Nobody's ash cans here. That's it. Now, if you just crawl in here through this window, you know. Ah, here we are. Here we are where? Here. Remley, how do you find these places? <laughs> I got contacts. Now, gents, you wanted to buy a good fur coat. Is that right? Yeah. I got one right here. Well, let me see it. Okay. Wait till I turn the lights out. <laughs> Oh, I've come to the right place. <laughs> What's the idea of turning the lights on? It's for your own protection. This coat is so highly glazed, if I leave the lights on, it'll dazzle you. <laughs> now, just look at this fur. Look at it. A guy's got to be an owl to buy a coat in this joint. <laughs> Stop horsing around. Shall I wrap this coat up, or do you want to wear it? I wouldn't buy a coat in this jip joint. Come on, Frankie. Hey, I'm sorry, Grogan. I changed my mind. I ain't going to buy my wife a fur. I'm going to buy her a diamond bracelet. Diamond bracelet? You come to the right place. Hey, step right behind this crate. Into our jewelry department. Now, wait till I turn the lights on. Oh, this we get to see with the lights on. Of course. I ain't ashamed of my jewelry. Hey, just look at this piece here. Now, there's a bracelet any woman would be proud to own. Hey, Curly, this is a beautiful hunk of jewelry. Yeah. Yeah, Looks like the real thing. Yeah. Hey, Grog, how much you want for this? Well, sir, I can let you have it for as little as how much you got. $200. So? You drive a hard bargain, bud. <laughs> All right, get the cash out while I wrap this up. Uh, would you like to have it gift wrapped? Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. I'll use this beautiful paper here. No, I better wrap it in something else. This is today's racing form, and I haven't read it yet. <laughs> Have you got the 200? Have I got it? I got the money right here in my hand. But wait a minute. Before I hand it over, are you sure that this is genuine? Looks like good money to me. I mean a break. <laughs> well, have it appraised. If they say it's worth less than $500, I'll give you your money back. Fair enough, eh? You? Say... Tell me, Grogan, if this is worth five hundred, how can you afford to sell it to me for two hundred? That's simple. I eliminate the middleman. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> or any other man who happens to get in my way. <laughs> it's a pleasure to do business with someone like you. <laughs> what do you know? It's a five o'clock whistle already. <laughs> Time to go home. I'll, I'll just take that 200. Thanks. So long, Wait a minute, Grogan. I... Frankie, why is he going down that trap door? I guess he has an apartment under the store. <laughs> well, now that you got Alice's present, let's take it home and we'll see. All right, you mugs. Stay where you are and get your hands up. This is a law. Well, if it ain't Seymour's subpoena in person. <laughs> yeah, old Nick Nightstick himself. <laughs> You're under arrest for receiving stolen goods. Hand over that bracelet. Peter, will you, bud? You're cluttering up the aisle. Go pound a beat hey, somewhere. Hey, Curly, Curly. <laughs> Can't talk that way to a cop. Yeah, what are you talking about? He ain't no cop. It's a racket. Grogan sells you the stuff, and this guy sticks you up and takes it back. He works with Grogan. He's a confederate. <laughs> Curly, he can't be a confederate Why not? He's wearing a blue uniform <laughs> Well, Mr. Bones, we finished with that missile routine last week <laughs> Well, I just thought that I'd get a little yak in here <laughs> <laughs> All right, pick and pat <laughs> Let's see how funny you can be down at the station house Station house? Hey, Rebel, did he say station house? Yeah, that must be the play. All right, come on, come on. I'm now, wait a minute. Come on. Miss Harris, we called you down to headquarters because we have a mug here who claims to be your husband. Turnkey's bringing him in now. Oh, he can't be my husband. Mr. Harris is downtown shopping. Oh, wait till I see this phony who's masquerading as my husband. I'll, I'll tell... Hello, honey. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no! Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> hey, Alice, I'm glad you're here. Now you can tell these guys who... Quiet, are... you. Mrs. Harris, is this man your husband? Before I answer that, can it be used against me? Honey, <laughs> will you please tell the man who I am? I want to get out... He is my husband. Oh, my mistake. His mistake, he says. <laughs> Phil, how did you get into this? Honey, I was buying you a Mother's Day present, and I didn't know the guy had stolen goods. Miss Harris, if you'll vouch for these men, I'll let them go in your custody. Oh, thank you, Sergeant. <laughs> and now to show my appreciation, I'd like to do something for you. Here's a couple of tickets to my radio show. Oh, Mr. Harris, you're so good to me. <laughs> I'm on duty Sunday. I won't be able to go. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> I'd hate to have you miss my song, Sarge. Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll sing it for you right now. Curly, please, not in the police station. You'll get us arrested again. Quiet, Remley. <laughs> this one Alice does with me. Oh. Let's show him, honey. Simply can't but baby, stay. it's cold outside. I've got to go but away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been, been hoping that you drop so in. Very warm. I'll hold your hands there just My like I. My mother will start to worry. What you hurry? And father will be pacing the floor. The fireplace roars. So really, I'd Beautiful, please don't hurry. Well, maybe just a half a drink more. Put some records on while I'm The neighbors may but think. But 
baby, it's bad out there. Say, what's in no the spring? No camps to be had out there. I wish I knew your how. Your eyes are like starlight to now. To break the spell. I'll take your hat, your hair looks I swell. I ought to say no, no, Mind no, if I move At least closer. I'm gonna say that I tried. What's the sense of hurt? I really can't Oh, stay. baby, don't hold out. Oh, baby, but it's, it's cold outside. I simply must But go. Baby, it's cold outside. The answer is Ooh, no. It's cold outside. The welcome has How been. How lucky that you dropped so in. Nice and warm. Look out the window at that My storm. Gosh, your lips look My delicious. brother will be there at the door. Waves upon the tropical My show. My maiden aunt's Gosh, your lips fishy. are delicious. Well, maybe just a cigarette more. Never such a blizzard I've before. I've got to get But home. But baby, you freeze out there. Say, lend me a call. It's up to your knees out there. You've really been I thrill when you touch my But hand. don't you see? How can you do this thing There's to me? There's bound to be talk Think of my lifelong At least sorrow. there will be plenty implied. If you caught no more, I really can't get stand. over that old doubt. Oh, Baby, but it's, it's cold People sing in the darndest places. Phil, let's go home. Oh, he can't go home yet. He has to get that $200 back from Grogan so he can buy your Mother's Day present. Frankie's right. Phil. I'd rather forget the present. No, no. We won't have any trouble getting the money back. Come on, Curly. Grogan belongs to a very exclusive club. We'll find him there. Okay, look, Alice, you go home and I'll call you right after I get my money back. But, huh? Phil, please don't. I want my money back. <laughs> Hey, Frankie. Hmm? This is a swanky club. Are you sure Grogan belongs to this? Oh, yeah. He's a charter member. He must be around someplace. Ah, oh, there he is. Hey, Grogan. Grogan. Hey, number 297341. Is somebody calling me? There he is. Oh, that's... <laughs> oh, 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 it's you guys. Well, bud, how'd the little woman like the trinket? She didn't see it. I got arrested for having stolen goods. Arrested? <laughs> Remley, I'll thank you to get this ex-con out of here. <laughs> I don't do business with criminals. I'm a criminal. You stole me a hot bracelet. All right, come around tomorrow. I'll send you a fan to cool it off. <laughs> Now, wait a minute, Grogan. I want my money back or I'm going to tell the police on you. Oh, you big tattered. <laughs> That's it. If you want your money back, I'll give it to you. Come on in the dining room. I'll get it for you. Yo, Levin, the winner. Prior six <laughs> Everybody, get in the field. Number, number 14, black. Get the in the winner. field, everybody. Get Prior in. Come on, now. All right, you wait here. I'll get your money. This is a nice big dining room. <laughs> Look at all the tables. Yeah. Wonder why everybody's standing at them tables. Must be Buffett service. <laughs> well, I'm hungry. Let's get something to eat. Hey, let's go over to this table. 
Yeah. Hey, look at it, really. Hmm? Hey, this is a cute tablecloth. Green with numbers on it. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. And look at the nice, big, lazy Susan they got in the middle. <laughs> yeah, but they ain't much food on it. All they got is one little white meatball spinning around. <laughs> Curly. Wow. That's a roulette wheel. <laughs> this is a gambling joint. No. So this is what they look like. <laughs> Heavens to Betsy, what a rude awakening. Yeah, and we better get out of here. If we ever got caught in a spot... Ow! Everybody stay where you are. This is a rape. This is our chance to get away from here. Come on. Come on, yeah, let's beat it. Follow me and don't lose your head, Remley. I'll get you out of this. Oh, I hope you can. I've never been so frightened in all my life. Control yourself, will you, Frankie? Every time you get excited, your voice goes up too. <laughs> that ain't me. It's a dame. Oh, that's all we need. Oh, please, please help me get okay, out. Okay, lady, okay, lady, okay, calm down. Just come right with us, right through this door. There, there. Well, thank goodness we made it. Nobody's here but the three of us. And little me. <laughs> Get your hands up. Hey, look, it's Blue Boy again. Homer Handcuff. <laughs> oh. Oh, so it's you two, huh? You guys get around, don't you? You ain't exactly a stay-at-home yourself. <laughs> now, officer, this time it's a mistake. You hear me? I'm... Yeah, it always is. Hey, uh, Murph, can I get these people's names from my paper? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Oh, no, a reporter. Now, look, Remley, whatever you do, don't give your right name. Tell him you're somebody else. Mm. I'm Larkin of the Mirror. What's your name, bud? My name? Um, um, Julius Abrosio, Mac. <laughs> And what's your name, mister? Phil Harris. <laughs> Frankie, what did you give my name for? You took the one I was going to use. <laughs> Yours is the only other one I could think of. So you're Phil Harris, huh? And who are you, Blondie? Are you with him? Yes, yes, I... I'm his wife. Alice Faye? No, no, look. Oh, wait, now, wait a minute, Story hits the street. Faye and Harris wait a minute, gambling bud. raid. I'll have this on the stands in an hour. Now, wait a minute. Come back here. That's not Alice and I'm not me. I'll... All right, all right. Get moving, all of you. If we hurry, you can get your old cell back. Oh, Gee, this story in the papers is horrible. Miss Faye in jail, caught in a gambling raid. I'd never have thunk it of her. I guess you can't tell a book by its cover. And such a beautiful cover. <laughs> what a binding. <laughs> I wonder who's here at the house taking care of the kids while she's incarcerated. Oh, hello, Julia. Miss Faye, you has been sprung. <laughs> Why don't you shoot your way out? What on earth are you talking about? You're supposed to be in jail. It says here in the paper that Phil Harris and Alice Faye was arrested in a gambling raid. A gambling raid? Oh, Julius, I... You don't have to explain, Somi. I don't care about your sordid past. <laughs> I know your husband 
drug you into this. Now, Julius, listen to me. Let you... me take you away from that Fagin and this criminal existence. <laughs> Julius, please, Mr. Harris is in jail. What'll I do? Leave him there! <laughs> this is our opportunity, Dream Girl. Let's fly away to Hawaii. Julius! Blue Hawaii! <laughs> Oh, stop it. I have to go down and get him out. Oh, I'd love to teach him a lesson. Then take me with you. I'm the best little teacher you can get. Miss Harris, I'm sorry you had to come down to the station house again. Oh, Alice, thank goodness you showed up. I've been trying to tell that sergeant that I'm innocent and I want to get out of here. If you show it on baby face, the gang's mouthpiece will have you out in no time. (laughs) Alice. What gang? Don't tell me you never heard of the Harris band. He's the leader of the toughest mob this side of Chicago. He's public enemy number one. But I... I, I, I... Oh, so you're the leader of a band of bad men, eh? Well, it's not their fault. They just happen to be lousy musicians. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. Let's get this straight. You tell me, son. Is this Phil Harris the radio comedian, or is he public enemy number one? Yes. Why, you little... Stand back. Mrs. Harris, is this man your husband? Is he a crook? Is he a band leader? Or is he nuts? Yes. (laughs) I mean, no. Sergeant, this man is my husband. He's not guilty of any crime, and if you release him in my custody, I'll be responsible. Okay, but this time, keep him out of trouble. Get out of here, Harris. And turnkey, throw that Remley character out, too. (laughs) Come along, Phil. And this time we're going right home. No, we're not. We are not going home. I'm just storing up. We're not going till I get that money back from Grogan so I can buy you a Mother's Day present. Phil, please stay away from I'm that man. I'm not going to stay away please. from that man. He owes me that money, and this time I'm going to his house. Now, I'm not going to get in any trouble there. Remley knows where he lives. Now, go home, and I'll call you as soon as I get my $200 back. Hello? Hello, Alice. It's me. Oh, thank goodness. Did you get the 200 from Grogan? Yeah, I got it, and I went downtown and bought you a Mother's Day present with it. Oh, Phil, I can't wait to see it. When will you be home? Just a minute. Hey, Sarge, how long do you think I'll be here? (laughs) Phil, you're in jail again? Yes, dear. What for now? Passing counterfeit money. Alice and Phil will be back in just a moment. But first, here's your Rexall family druggist. Recently, a customer asked me for an example of Rexall quality that she could see with her own eyes. I told her one example like that is the label on a Rexall drug product, and she came back with... But every drug product has a label. Yes, ma'am, that's true, but let's take a look at this Rexall label for a minute. See these three different sets of numbers? One here in this corner, one over here, and one up here? Yes. You've probably never noticed them before, but... Each one means that certain important steps in the preparation of this product have been carefully done and thoroughly checked. For instance, 
This one here is the product's code number and tells the tested formula by which it was compounded. This one here is the control number which was assigned to the complete case history that has been kept on this product through every step of its manuf- manufacture. And um, this one here? That's the identification of the label itself. And it means that the label has been carefully checked for the proper directions and is the right one for this particular product. And I've always looked on a label as just a piece of paper with the name of the product. Well, ma'am, those pieces of paper are handled like currency in a bank. They're kept in a locked room until the labeling process begins. Then a certain amount is counted out very carefully. And after the labeling run, every one of them is again counted and checked against the number of bottles or packages labeled. Naturally, the two have to balance. Well, that is evidence I can see for myself. Yes, ma'am. Evidence of the painstaking care and accuracy that go into the preparation of all of the 2,000 or more drug products made by the Rexall Drug Company. When you remember things like this, you understand why some 10,000 independent Rexall druggists tell you you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Alice, I'm sorry I didn't get you anything for Mother's Day. I didn't get my money back from Grogan and... Oh, that's all right, Phil. You don't have to get me anything. But I want to. Well, if you insist, okay. But don't spend too much money. Get me something inexpensive. Like what? Well, I I could use something to get around town in. How about a, a Cadillac convertible, darling? Or would you rather buy me a Lincoln Continental, sweetheart? Take roller skates and call me stinky. <laughs> This is Bill Foreman wishing good health to all from Rexall. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. That announcer there, um, the uh, Bill Foreman, that announcer, he actually was the voice for many, many years of the Whistler on radio. Uh, it's interesting to hear him like in an announcer role, right. and then. He's got a very deep voice, kind of similar to yours. Sounds a lot well, alike. Not quite as deep as mine. I mean, I could actually saw. almost confuse the two of you. <laughs> it's it's interesting, though, because he, he this is an NBC show, and he was an announcer. Just he wasn't an actor, he was an announcer on it. But then on CBS, he was the whistler. Right. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you know, he got to work on both networks doing totally different things. Uh, Phil Harris and Alice Faye, May uh, 8th, 1949, Mother's Day show with a married couple, Phil Harris and Alice Faye. And I got to tell you, that series was so well done, such great writing, and the actors were so terrific on it. One of the funniest shows from the golden age of radio. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. Touch my hand to show me you understand, and something happens to me that's some kind of wonderful. Anytime my little world seems blue, I just have to look at you, and everything seems to be some kind of wonderful. 
you know what I think is also wonderful? Um, I'm afraid to ask. Vistro. Oh, Vistro. Because I saw wonderful. some of the food on the website. Looks really so good. So you ready to, to take I'm, the plunge? And this order? is the week. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick out what I want from Vistro. So I just want to tell everybody, Vistro is my find. It's it's my it's my excitement of the week. It is the best vegan meal delivery service. In the entire world. Yep. And I can safely say that because I am a fan of Vistro. Well, you get the food and you love I it. I get the food. I love it. You know, they cook the food. They have their own chefs. And they prepare this fresh, organic food. And they deliver it to me frozen. And I just heat it and enjoy it. And There's, it's vegan. So it's, it's amazing, all vegan. Right? I don't go to the grocery store or look for recipes or chop or prep. I just get these wonderful, healthy, plant-based meals delivered to my door, and I heat it up in the microwave or the oven, and I love Vistro. Right. Check it out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join. Yeah. I'm going to join, and I'm going to get the food. You can customize your own plan. You can have high protein or gluten-free, low calorie, whatever works for you. I promise you'll love it. Check it out. Go to Vistro.com, V-E-E-S-T-R-O.com, and let me know how much you love it as well. Two E's in Vistro. V-E-S-T-R-O dot com. All right, I'm going to do it, Lisa. I'm excited to and hear about your experience. And I'll tell you next week what I ordered. In our next hour, we're going to tune into The Lives of Harry Lime, Orson Welles starring in uh, the prequel to the movie. It's great. You're going to love it. Stick around here on WGN. dye my cigarette out, Lisa. I don't want to get smoke in your eyes. Okay, thank you. I would appreciate that. It is uh, nine minutes after midnight here. It's Sunday. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. And it's hour three of the WGN Radio Theater. And it is March 1st. It is March 1st. Yeah, it's not um, leap year. Isn't leap year the year that women can ask men to marry them or something like that? Isn't that how that works in leap year? I've never heard that one. I think so. Well, I There's think some they could kind ask of a, men whether I, it was leap year or not. I know that. Okay. I'm not saying you can't ever ask, <laughs> but I think that's like a kind of a traditional, you know, yeah, little thing. Well, maybe fun this thing. will be your year then, Carl. <laughs> yeah, maybe some woman's going to ask me to get married. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Anything's possible, you know? You know, you anything, anything is possible. You believe. This is true. <laughs> you um, know, next weekend you know what? If they daylight did, Time. If a woman did, she would definitely have smoke in her eyes. She'd be wearing rose-colored glasses, too. <laughs> she would, it's the only way she's going to ask me to marry her if she can't see me. Um, so, okay, so, uh, yeah, it's, what is it now? It's what? 
What? It's what? Next weekend. Next weekend. Saturday mm-hmm. at 2 a.m., which is kind of Sunday morning, oh, is daylight saving time. Right. So at 2 o'clock, it will be 3 o'clock. So I think we will lose an hour of our show next week. That's weekend. right. I think we're going to be... So yeah, um, that's we'll probably, be on for four hours, right. I assume. Even but, though we're starting at 10. Right. We'll start at 10, but at, at 2 o'clock, it will be 3 o'clock. Okay. And we can watch the clocks here in the studio, yes, turn. Yes, yes, Um Orson Welles is the uh, star of the radio show we're going to play in this hour, The Lives of Harry Lime. He was sort of a con artist, uh, good old Harry Lime. You know, he... he uh, was the star of the of the film The Third Man, along with Joseph Cotton. And then it was so popular, the movie was so popular, that they created a radio series as a prequel to the movie called The, the Lives of Harry Lyme, because he dies in the movie. You know, he's, right, he's, they'd he's have to do a prequel. <laughs> in the uh, sewers of Vienna. Um, so that's in this hour. You're also going to uh, you're going to give us just the facts from 1951, yes, right? Yes, indeed. Okay, so stay with us, folks. Lots more coming your way right here on the WGN Radio Theater. 3.2 million cats enter animal shelters every year. Sadly, over half of them are euthanized. So now, when you buy a green jug of Cat's Pride Fresh and Light Litter, we will donate a pound of litter to shelters across the country. No asterisk, a pound for every jug, period. See the whole story and find out how you can help save America's shelter cats one green jug at a time at catspride.com. Eating natural and organic is not as expensive as it used to be, especially when you shop at Whitman. They have aisles full of certified organic food, from fruits and vegetables to dairy products and even meat, all at great prices. They even have a huge selection of wheat-free and gluten-free items. I can come to Woodman's and get everything I need all under one roof. My name is Alicia, and I shop at Woodman's. Hi, this is Lisa Wolf. Check out the Classic Radio Club at ClassicRadioClub.com, where each month you can receive 10 of the greatest classic radio shows of all time on five CDs in a collector case. Join now and receive your first month's 10 classic radio shows on five CDs, regularly priced at $39.95 for only $1 plus shipping and handling. Choose the digital option and receive your 10 classic radio shows via email and we'll eliminate the shipping and handling. Each month, we'll select 10 more of the greatest classic radio shows of all time from our library of over 100,000 shows and send them to you. And I promise every show will be superior sound quality and you'll never receive a duplicate show. Log on to ClassicRadioClub.com and receive your first month's 10 classic radio shows for only $1. Join now at ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is our Just the Facts segment from 1951. We're about to hear the lives of Harry Lyme from 1951. 
But in 1951, Ike Turner, who is the ex-husband of Tina Turner, mm-hmm. recorded what is considered by many to be the first rock and roll song. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's, it's called great. Rocket 88. It's a cool song. Everybody it is a cool song. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. Okay. First recorded in Memphis, Tennessee, of course, in March of 1951, and the single reached number one on the Billboard R&B chart, considered to be the first rock and roll really? song. It was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 91, the Grammy Hall That's of Fame. That's a great trivia question. What's the, and the first rock and, rock and roll, and roll you know, song of all time? It is arguable, of yeah, course. Yeah, sure. Um, but this is the one that most mm-hmm. people consider to be the first, and now you know it's Rocket 88. Wow. All right. Did not know that. All right. So a very famous photo was taken uh, March 14th of 1951. The photographer was Arthur Sass, mm-hmm. and he asked Albert Einstein to smile. Okay. Are you familiar with this photo? Oh, yeah, the and, black and white photo and, of him. And sure. what did he do instead of smile? Frowned? Well, almost. He stuck out his tongue. Oh. And that's what created the famous photo. It was taken just after his 72nd birthday celebration. His hair was all crazy all well, over the place. Yeah, and that's the funny thing about this um, is that it became one of the most popular photos ever taken of Einstein. And I the- think Andy Warhol later did a painting of it, one of his Andy Warhol paintings. He, he may very well. and I could I be wrong, but th- I think he you did. You could be wrong. You could be right. I'm usually wrong. <laughs> usually wrong. But the thing about this picture that people were really grabbing onto is that it showed a nutty professor side uh-huh. of him and a more playful side of him yeah. rather than that very serious mm-hmm. Albert Einstein one mm-hmm. that money, many assumed that he was. Yeah. So the original picture was auctioned off for $72,300, making it the most expensive Einstein photograph ever sold. Mm-hmm. See what happens? So next time we take a picture, you know what to do. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. In 1951... Gold opened his first gym in New Orleans. Gold's Gym. Gold's Gym. Wow. 1951, but it was not called Gold's Gym. It was called Ajax Gym. Ah. So this didn't work. It was a flop. Um, at that point, apparently, he was not interested in running the gym. He just wanted to open a gym. It closed very shortly thereafter, and then he reopened it. It in- got scrubbed. It got scrubbed. He reopened it. You know where? Where was the first gold gym Los after Angeles. that? It was in Venice, Venice Beach, California, okay, just close. outside of Los Angeles in mm-hmm. 1965. And the second time was a charm. Um, now he claims 2.5 million members. Crazy worldwide mm-hmm. and some 600 gyms found in 27 countries. Yeah. Wow. All starting in 1951. Gold gym. Yep. Very good. Thank you, Lisa. Sure, Carl. All right. Our text in line, 312-981-7200. Make sure you text us. We love hearing from you. And thanks for joining us every single weekend here. And uh, we do, I mean, we, what would we do without our listeners? I, I mean, I there'd be know. this. This is not. It would be no fun. It'd be no fun. And, so, and, and you know, I do want to say we are reading 
sending your text, and we so appreciate the kind words yeah. and all of the suggestions. I mean, we, we do this because we love playing these classic radio shows for you, and thanks for tuning us in and listening to the show. So we're here till 3 o'clock in the morning. In this hour now, it's time for the Lives of Harry Lime. Now, this series aired in the U.K. and in America during the 1951 and 1952 seasons. Orson Welles reprised his role of Harry Lime from the celebrated 1949 film The Third Man by Graham Greene. The radio series served as a prequel to the film and depicts the many misadventures of con artist Harry Lime in a lighter tone than the film, because the film was really kind of noir and very uh, kind of kind of dry and, and drama This has had some tongue-in-cheek in it. You know, the radio show is a little, little better as far as uh, making you smile. British radio producer Harry Allen Towers produced this show, created this show, for his company, Towers of London, and recorded in London's IBC Studios. Now, there were 52 episodes produced, but the BBC in the UK only aired 16 of the episodes, but all 52 episodes aired here in America. Now, Wells was credited with writing several of these episodes. One of them, Man of Mystery, was later expanded by Wells and served as the basic plot for his film, Doctor, uh, I should say, Mister Arkadin, uh, and years after the series ended, Lisa, it's very interesting. Years after it ended, Harry Allen Towers told an interviewer that he is not sure Wells ever wrote any of these scripts, even though he paid Wells to do it, because one day a man walked into Towers' office demanding to be paid for the scripts, which he had ghostwritten mm. for Wells, and when Wells was asked about it later, he smiled and said, don't pay him, those scripts weren't very good anyway. <laughs> it sounds like something Orson Wells would say. All right, we have a broadcast for you now called Rogue's Holiday. From September 21st, 1951, Orson Welles starring now uninterrupted. Here is The Lives of Harry Lime. Presenting Orson Welles as The Third Man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character, originally created in the motion picture The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Karras. That was the shock that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man, yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. No. He had many lives. And I can tell you about all of them. How? Because my name is Harry Lyme. Did I ever tell you about the time when I outwitted three very suspicious Wall Street investors at a net profit to yours truly of 55,000 American dollars? No? Well, 
I will sometime. Anyway, because of that little caper, I decided that an ocean trip would be good for my nerves and for the nerves of some half-dozen New York detectives. That's how I happened to go on a holiday. A rogue's holiday, if you will. Orson Welles as Harry Lyme, the third man in Rogue's Holiday. Very pleasant. Day or so out of New York aboard the Queen Anne, bound for Southampton. I was on the passenger list as J. Harrington Lyme. I ate, of course, at the captain's table. Remembering how I put the investments of those three Wall Street brokers in my own personal piggy bank, whenever I was asked... And uh, what business are you in, Mr. Lyme? I would smile to myself and answer, I'm an investment broker, Lady Barbara. It is the Lady Barbara Folliot, isn't it? Yes, of course. I thought we'd met. Aren't you also sitting at the captain's table? Yes, that's right. And I seem to remember that there's an empty chair at the table next to yours. You're, you're not traveling alone. I, uh, It's of no importance... Uh, you are on a holiday, Mr. Lyon? A holiday? After a manner of speaking, yes. I don't understand. I'm so interested in my work, Lady Barbara, that I'm seldom able to keep from mixing pleasure and business. Oh, you seem so young to be engaged in so complex a business. Investment banker. Mm. I always thought all bankers were portly men in their 50s. Well, every banker must be able to inspire confidence in his clients, Lady Barbara. The incompetent banker relies on his appearance and his maturity. And you? I rely on my record of success, man. No hurry. No hurry at all. Not while I was on my holiday. Pleasant boat, Queen Anne, scheduled to take six days to Southampton. She was. I had plenty of time. But the question of Lady Barbara Folliot's bank account and the question of the empty chair next to it at the captain's table preyed a bit on my mind, so I looked at the passenger list. There she was, all right. Lady Barbara Folliot, stateroom A deck, stateroom for two right now. But all it said was, and companion. Hmm. And companion, what did that mean? Not a husband, surely. Looked up the steward for a stateroom. Yes, uh, steward, you're in charge of the staterooms along this corridor, aren't you? Yes, sir. Now, number six, I believe that's Lady Barbara Folliot's stateroom, isn't it? I believe yes, so. Now, I was wondering, just idle curiosity, you know, on the passenger list, she's down as traveling with a companion. But he doesn't say who the companion might be. You don't, sir. Uh, steward. Yes, sir. Here, take this for your trouble. Thank you, Now, sir. then, would you tell me who her companion is? No, sir. Not me, sir. Uh, will that be all? Uh, yeah, just a minute now. Yes, After sir. all, old man, I slipped you a $10 bill just for a bit of information. The uh, lady in question, sir, slipped me a double sawbuck not to give out that information, sir. A double sawbuck? $20, sir. Ah, yes. Well, then, I'll just take this for your trouble. Hmm? Thank you, now, sir. Now, then, about Lady Barbara's companion. You were planning a little anky-panky, no doubt, sir. Anky-panky? Worried, were you, sir, lest the companion might be the husband of the lady in question? Mm, uh, yes, something like that, yes. Looking for a little shipboard romance, no doubt, sir. <laughs> That's it. Now, 
Who's the companion? You've got clear sailing, sir. The companion's not her husband. Matter of fact, sir. Uh, yeah? Take my advice and wait till the companion's got her sea legs, sir. A lot cuter, the companion, than Lady Barbara, sir. Uh-huh. Huh. Thank you, Stuart. Not at all, sir. So, in the next day or so, I found opportunities for squiring Lady Barbara around the boat. Cocktails in the evening, a drink or two after dinner, even a game or two of deck tennis in the afternoon. Something she'd said made me prick up my ears and redouble my attentions to her as a prospective, uh, shall I say, client. We were having brandy in the lounge after dinner. Uh, the other day, Mr. Lyon... Yes? You were saying that what you relied on to inspire your clients with confidence... Was my continuing success, yes, that's right. I must say, you you inspire me with confidence. Well, that's half the battle for an investment banker like me. Have you some problem with your own investments? Uh, to be frank, yes, I have, Mr. Lyon. Uh, we must talk of it further tomorrow. Well, why not now? Uh, thank you, I should like to, but the truth is... I must spend... Ah, your companion. The reason for the empty chair next to you at the table. Hmm? Yes, I... She hasn't her sea legs yet, hmm? How did you know it was she, not he? Well, it's, it's no matter. You'll probably be meeting her tomorrow. If she takes a liking to you, Mr. Lyme, as I have, then perhaps we can do some business. That is, if you want to. Anyway, I can be of service, Lady Barbara. Next morning, I ran into their steward, and he told me that both ladies were out promenading. Some caution, I went looking for them. True, I was on holiday, but still, if I could turn my hand to a piece of business. Besides, I was curious about this mysterious companion whose name was not even carried on the passenger list. Turning a corner on the promenade deck, I nearly bumped into them. Quickly, I ducked back behind a bulkhead as they passed. Ma princesse. So, her companion was a princess. Uh -huh. For the rest, I'd seen that she wore a veil close over her hair and face, but no veil could conceal that beauty. And I'd seen something else that interested me, too. A string of pearls. Matched pearls. I maneuvered into position for the next round on the promenade. Uh, Lady Barbara. Oh, oh, good morning, Mr. Lyme. Anne, this is the nice man I've told you about who's been so kind to me. Uh, Mr. Lyme, this is Miss Jones. How do you do, Mr. Lyme? I am pleased to meet you. Miss Jones? Such an ordinary name for such an extraordinary young lady. <laughs> he makes nice speeches, Barbara, just as you said he did. Uh, perhaps you'll permit me to join you? Oh, I'm so sorry. We were just going in, Mr. Lyme, weren't we, Barbara? Well, then at least, Miss uh, uh, Jones, maybe you will join me and Lady Barbara this evening before dinner. Uh, Mr. Lyme insists on the practice of buying me a cocktail before dinner, Anne. <laughs> Why, I should like that. Only as to cocktails, the ship's doctor told me that perhaps until I am stronger... I should drink champagne. Perfect. I'll make sure there's a bottle of ice for you, Miss... Miss, uh, Jones. Miss Jones, eh? I was sure that while that name Jones was a phony, the pearls weren't. This was promising to become one of the more profitable holidays I'd spent. That evening, I was in the lounge early, a bucket of iced champagne by my side. <laughs> Mr. Lyme. As you promised, my wine. Uh, it's vintage, Miss Jones. I think it should be adequate. Uh, no, Lady Barbara? Oh, she was a little indisposed. She sends her regards. Please sit down. Stuart, I confess, Miss Jones, I'm not too sorry Lady Barbara's not joining us tonight. So? I was looking forward so to meeting you. You'd become a lady of mystery. And having met you this morning on the promenade deck, I spent the day looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, more pretty speeches. <laughs> 
Uh, um, all right, sir? Yes, fine, fine. Oh, uh, fine, thank you. If the wine meets with Miss Jones' approval. Uh, Miss Jones knows little of wines, Mr. Lyme. She is content to leave such matters to you. You have won Lady Barbara's confidence, and that means that you have won mine, too. Then a toast to your improved health, Miss uh, uh, Jones. Now, why do you always pause? As if you do not remember my name. Oh, my apologies. Very rude of me. I'm awfully sorry. <laughs> I accept your... Oh! What is it? Oh, my string of necklaces. It, it broke. Oh, my pearls. Oh, oh here. All... Here, look out. Just, just hold still. You know how many of them there were? Oh, don't move. Uh, yes, yes, there were 64. Just so we can make sure none of them have rolled under... The... Here. Yeah, here's another. Oh, such a stupid thing. No, I really must have... Please, please, here. Here's another. Steward. Oh, no, no, it is all right. I think... I think that's all of them. Let me see. Quickly, that's five, ten, fifteen. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, just hang on a second, will you? The lady's string of pearls broke. It maybe that one or two are still missing. Oh, some. I, I have never know. done such a bit. Oh. Uh, such a foolish thing. Fifty-five and five is sixty, and one, two, three, four. Yes, that is the whole lot of them. Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> uh, lucky thing, ma'am. <laughs> oh, Mister Lyle, do me a great favor. Anything at all? I say, you're sure they're all here? Oh, yes, sure. Take them, will you? You have an envelope, perhaps, or a safe pocket? Take them for me to the little jewelry shop. You know the one right on the stairs? Oh, sure, sure. I know the shop, but... Uh, <sighs> Maybe it's still open. You can have the man restring them properly on a strong new string. Or would you do that? Well, I'm not sure I like the idea, really, of wandering around the ship with a handful of loose pearls. These look like the real thing. Oh, no, no. They will be perfectly safe. Now, won't you? Oh, me, such a little favor. If the shop should still be open, please. Leave you? Oh, I shall sit here quite quietly. Just thinking how lucky I am that you were with me when the string broke. Until you return. All right? All right. I'll be back as soon as I can. Orson Welles returns in just a moment as the third man. Orson Welles, as the third man, continues with Rogue's Holiday. So there I was, by myself, free as the wind, with 64 pearls in my pocket. Even one of them, one of the bigger ones, would be worth, well, 5,000 pounds, something like that. Nice sum. My stateroom, I had some loose pearls, paste. I could have made the switch easily enough, had plenty of time. And a stupid thief might have done just that. But not Harry Lyon. Oh, no, no. I'd play it smart. I'd wait till later. Went straight to the ship's jeweler. String broker? If you could do a quick but good repair job, old man, I'd be most grateful. Oh, it's easy enough. Just take a moment. Just roll them out here. Hmm. Good ones, aren't they? Well, they look it, don't they? Yes. To an expert's eye, they're very handsome indeed. How much would you estimate that string to be worth, old man? <laughs> if you were to just walk into this shop and ask to buy them, do you yeah, mean? Yeah. Or... Uh, 
Or if you wanted me to find you another 64 like No, just walk in and buy them. 50,000 pounds? Oh, I'd say this string uh, closer to 150,000, sir. Well, I was a pretty rich man there for a few minutes. <laughs> there you are, sir. Yes. That string shouldn't break very Thank you very much. What do I owe you? Oh, forget it, sir. The privilege to be handling those pearls, even if only for a moment. It would have been foolish for me to temper with his fortune while we were still aboard ship. Two days we'd been in Southampton, at which there'd be still plenty of time. The important thing was to get this, this lovely girl's confidence, which I most certainly did. And the second thing was to pry under her incognito. Who was she? Which princess of the blood was anxious to conceal her identity under the plebeian name of Jones? And why? Not until the last night, when the ship was gliding into the soft darkness past Plymouth, and the two of us stood under a sickle moon on the boat deck, did I find out. If she looked lovely in that moonlight, her pearls looked even lovelier. Oh, what a wonderfully soft moonlight. I hadn't noticed. You had not? Oh, the band has begun playing again. It has? Can't you hear it? What's the matter with you? Well, I need all my five senses for something more important than looking at nights or listening to dance bands. Oh, no, no, Mr. Lyme. Harry. Uh, now, Harry, you must know. If the night is warm, it's because it must be to afford you a warm mantle. If the band is playing, it's only to provide a setting for your voice. Miss uh, Jones. My name is... Yes. Anne. Don't move. Please. What price the warmth of the night or the music of the band? Oh, you... You kiss very expertly, Mr. Harry. Or, or should I say you seem very practiced? If a cat may look at a king... Yes? Then perhaps it's all right if I kiss a princess. Oh, you recognize me. Well, I knew you were a princess, not your name, if that matters. You are uncanny, Mr. Lyle. Harry. Anne, since you have gotten this far and since you have shown yourself trustworthy, I can see no reason for not telling you anymore. I am Anne de Bourbon. Princess of Helwigstein. At your service, ma'am. You have heard of our principality? It is in eastern Germany, beyond the Iron Curtain. I should say it was, it is no more. It's all gone except... Except what? I'm not sure. I will not know until I meet my husband in London. If I meet my husband. If? Well, there's uh, some doubt. I have said too much already, Mr. Lyme. It is too bad. It has been a pleasant evening. I was almost able to forget for a moment. Good night. She was gone. Just like that. At least I knew now who she was. Whether I'd be able to find her again in London, whether I'd frightened her away and wither my chance at that string of pearls by letting her know that I knew she was a princess, all these things I was a little nervous about. Till next day, just as I was getting ready to disembark in Southampton, Lady Barbara came up to me rather quickly. Uh, Mr. Lyme, here, a note. A note from... Uh, read it, please. After last night, I've been worried for fear I, I might just possibly have said something which, you know, might, might have offended your friend, Miss uh, Jones. Offended her? Oh, read the note. The note paper bore a crest to Colin Matthews, one sheet of heavy paper folded once. There was no salutation. The note said... As you said, a cat may look at a king. It might be interesting and fun to experiment once more with your other statement, the one about a princess. There was no signature, but none was necessary. Do you feel better? Uh, yes, but... She uh, asked me to tell you that we would be stopping at the Carlton. We'll hope to see you then. Uh, 
told she had arranged that we should meet again after all. But when we met again, away from the dangerous confines of an ocean liner, I proposed to relieve her lovely neck of those lovely pearls. Oh, sure, I was on a holiday and sentiment was involved, but these were factors that had to be disregarded. My scheme was foolproof. As it turned out, the scheme wasn't needed. The first time I saw her in the sitting room of her Carlton suite... Mr. Lyme. Oh. <laughs> All right, Harry. Harry, you have already done me one favor. I hate to ask you, I've but... told you I'm at your service, Miss uh, Jones. No, no, call me, Anne, please. Yes. If you want me, Highness, I shall be... At... Oh, no, no, don't leave, Papa. Stay with us. You know the favor I have to ask of Harry anyway. I yes, started me. to say anything short of murder, Harry. Oh, no, no, it's nothing like that. First, listen. On shipboard, you remember, I told you I was to meet my husband. If, you said. Hmm? Yes, if. This is the if. Years ago, Harry, when the Red Army was driving through East Germany, we had to flee. My husband hid what was valuable that we had. Jewels some gold plate, a pitiful collection, really. But all we had. He hid it himself. He alone knew where it was. He, <laughs> he trusted in those days no one. Then, a few weeks ago, we planned to get it back. It would cost us a lot, we knew. Bribes, the purchase of a plane, fee for the pilot, more bribes and always more bribes. Klaus had to fly into Helvigstein, don't you see, himself. A mad and dangerous idea. I just think so. But he refused to tell anyone else where his cachet was. He could not trust anyone. I went to America to raise some funds that was needed. Hmm. Lady Barbara has been good enough to lend us more. But just today, I have learned that even more is needed. More money? Uh, Mr. Lyme, say no quickly if you cannot do me this favor. But I have exhausted all my other resources. If you knew how much it costs to bribe these officials over no, here... No, I'll bet. How, how much do you need? Oh, you will do it? It's just a loan, mind you. It's a pleasure. Lady Barbara's investment will bring her all we need at the first of the next quarter, and then I can repay you... Please, please, it. how much do you need? Ten thousand American dollars. It is too much? No, I don't think so. No, no, certainly not. And see, for security, oh, for no. security, on your loan or here, you will take this. My pearls. You have already once guarded them well. Oh, please, I, <clears throat> I wouldn't dream oh, of... Yes, I insist. Otherwise, I will not even ask you for the loan of the 10,000 American dollars. Oh, oh, well, if you insist. Oh, yes, yes. take them. Now, how can we arrange to get the money? Well, I have more than that here in the hotel safe in American dollars, too. Just let me ring the desk. <laughs> A trip downstairs in the lift, elevator to you, back up again to my room and over to hers. I handed her ten bills. She handed me the pearls. We smiled, shook hands on the deal, and I walked out of her room with a fortune in my pocket. I call for a celebration. Pal of mine runs a pub saloon to you in London. I use it as a sort of message center. I have letters sent me there. My pal knows all the gossip who's in town, who swindled whom, all the news. I need my business, so I, I went straight to him. Harry, I haven't seen you for months. Afternoon, Barney. Give me a whiskey and soda, double whiskey and soda. None of your bar whiskey. There's something good. One for yourself. I'm celebrating. So am I, man. So am I. I'm celebrating your return. <laughs> well, good. How long have you been in England? Oh, just a little uh, while. Too hot for you in the States, was Look, it? Look, can we have a drink somewhere in private? Yeah, sure. Why not? Follow me. Got onto something good, have you? I'll be leaving London pretty quick, Barney. I have to go to Europe, France, I guess maybe Italy. Why, you've only just got here. I pulled a quick one. They may be looking for me in London sooner than I like to think. Uh-huh. What for? Unless it's something you think I shouldn't know look, about. Look, Barney. 
Well, now, aren't they beauties? Uh, real thing, aren't they? I had them priced by a jeweler who said he'd ask 150,000 pounds for them. Oh, that should keep you in cigarettes for a week or two. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad at all. Not half bad. Not, uh, in fact, a quarter bad. Uh, let me have a look, uh, do you mind? Look them over all you want, Barney. I'll fence them in Paris somewhere. This is your last look, old man. Uh-huh. Where did you say you got them? Off a German princess. She gave them to me as a security on a loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, German princess, is it? <laughs> yes, French-born, I think. French-born, you think? Yeah. Name of what? Uh, Anne de Bourbon, princess of Elvigstein. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. Uh, well, what's so funny? What's so very funny? <laughs> Anne de Bourbon, princess de Elvigstein. <laughs> all right, old man, all right. Better let me in on the joke. <laughs> I thought these pearls looked funny, although you said they weren't gem. You're I'll... crazy. I, well, Barney, I had them priced myself. Maybe you had some pearls priced, but not these, my boy. You've been had. The oldest trick in the world. Pulled on you, Harry Lyme. Now, you're lying. Now, don't try to pull your tricks on me, Barney. A joke's a joke, but... Oh, I don't have to. It's been pulled already. Harry, me bucko, I know who Andy Bourbon is. I know who the Princess von Elwigstein is, too. She's a slick little article. Oh, no. But she ain't German. She's not French-born, and I don't think you'll ever find any Elwig Stein on no map. She's Doris Jones. Oh. That's who she is. And she was born right here in Clapham. That's where she was born. And she took you and shook you for uh, how much? I gave her 10,000 American dollars. I don't believe you. I'll die. <laughs> the oldest gang in the world and pulled on none other than Harry Lime himself. I'll die. <laughs> Room 316, please. Harry, when this news gets around, boy... That's right, I'm calling Miss Jones. No, never mind. No. Well, do I win me bet? And did you lose your 10,000 American dollars? Yes. All I've got are these... These pearls. Oh, better than nothing, Harry. It's, it's a good imitation. Must be worth 50 pounds. 50 pounds? Well, I'm on my holiday, and... I come out ahead after all. What? Well, what about your 10,000 American oh, dollars? Your slick little article from Clapham tries to pass that 10,000, Barney. They're counterfeit. That'll teach Miss uh, Jones to try anything fast with Harry Lyme. Lime returns in just a moment. It seems that Miss uh, Jones found herself a legitimate prince, one of those exiles in Portugal, and settled down with him in Lisbon. I ran into her at Estoril a couple of seasons later. She was a real princess now. 
But it seems his highness isn't as young as he was and probably never was, so the princess is very democratic. She asked me to their place for dinner, said she thought I'd be interested in some of the interior decorations. I was. She complimented me on my nice set of pearl studs, which she recognized, and showed me into the cloakroom, which was entirely wallpapered in American $10 bills, or a reasonable facsimile. I recognized them. No hard feelings, you understand. It's a pleasant little caper, and I always enjoy moving about amongst the upper classes. It's so educational. Well, goodbye for now. Don't take any lead nickels. And remember, if you can't manage to resist temptation, be sure you get it appraised. The Lives of Harry Lime, September 21st, 1951, Rogue's Holiday with Orson Welles. And, you know, he was in London at this time in 1951 and 52. And Harry Allen Towers approached him, Lisa, and said, let's let's do some work together. I'm the biggest producer of in, in London here, and you're one of the biggest actors in America. Let's create some radio shows for you. And so this was one of them, The Lives of Harry Lyme. The other one was The Black Museum. We play that every once in a while. And then the other one was a Sherlock Holmes series that he was doing with Sir John Gielgud and Sir Ralph Richardson as Holmes and Watson. And Wells played the plum role of Professor Moriarty on that. So he was involved in uh, that and then starred in the other two. And this show really was um, radio's first successful anti-hero. I mean, you know, you rooted for... Harry Lyme, even though he kind of was a scoundrel, you know, kind of a con man, but you rooted for him because he was interesting, and Orson Welles was playing that part. And that's good writing, that they can get you to root for for the guy. Right, and then later, of course, you remember Orson Welles doing those Palmasalm commercials. I I will sell no wine wine before it's time. Before it's time. (laughs) (laughs) Very dramatic. (laughs) All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Never let it fade away. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Save it for a rainy day. For love may come and tap you on the shoulder Some starless night Just in case you feel you want to hold her You'll have a pocket 
pocket full of starlight Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Save it for a rainy For love may come and tap you on the shoulder Some starless night And just in case you feel you want to hold her You'll have a pocket full of starlight Pocket full of starlight mm-hmm. They'll probably play music like this on our cruise oh, August maybe. 1st in Bermuda. Well, they will if we ask them to. There'll be some calypso music. That would be great. Right? Right. Get Bermuda. us in the mood for classic radio. You know how great radio. that's going to be? I, I don't. I can't even picture it going on this cruise with our classic radio listeners, the ones who I love can't wait. classic radio. Yeah. That, and I was thinking about it. I don't know if there's ever been a classic radio cruise ever in the history of life. <laughs> I don't Has know. Has there? I don't this know. This might be the very first. Um, It's going to be fun. It's going to be We're fun. We're going to do like reenactments of suspense and maybe a comedy like Jack Benny or something. And our listeners that go with us on the cruise are going to perform in those radio reenactments. If they want to. Well, of course. Or you they know. can just relax we're and enjoy have a, the show. And we're going to have a lot of prizes and a lot of trivia. And yeah. we are going to Bermuda August 1st of this year. Plus, we're going to start things off with a cocktail party. And Lisa will be drinking Roma wines. <laughs> That's for sure. What else is there? We're going on Oceana Cruise Line, which is the best of the best, known for their food and their entertainment. Listen, folks, Lisa's parents <laughs> go on this cruise cruise line. They're going on an Oceana cruise line in just a couple of weeks really? from now. So that tells me so it's got to be great. So that's that's it. Yeah. That's just if the way to do it. If her parents go on Oceana, we know you it's know good. it's good. It's true. You know, they've got four unique, they're open seating restaurants. They have a world-class fitness well, center. Well, listen, don't go so fast past that. What's so great about the open seating restaurants mm-hmm. is there's no waiting. You go whenever right. you want. That's right. To There's eat. no seating. The not early like, seating, the late yeah. seating. It's very relaxed. You're hungry. You go eat, and and so I'll be there you a lot. You want to gamble? You go to the casino. What? I've never been on a cruise where you could just go eat dinner whenever you want or lunch. It was always seating, early seating, late seating. Right. This is going to be great. I'm just going to be able to walk in there and eat whenever I want. <laughs> and more importantly than the eating. <laughs> We're going to uh, two islands in Bermuda, St. George and Hamilton, and apparently there are pink sand beaches there and turquoise Not waters. Not apparently. They're right. There well, is. Well, that's what I understand. I've never mm-hmm. been there, but that's going to change on pink August 1st. Pink sand. Think about that. Yeah. Never seen There's pink quartz. sand before. There's some kind of a quartz in the sand that makes it gives it a pink hue. This is going to be really cushy-cushy. Oh, yeah. It's be well, a lot we're, of fun. we're fancy, and we hope that you'll be fancy with us. Come with us, folks. August 1st, this year, yep. it's coming up. It is. You're probably going to take a vacation anyway. So if you are, come with us. We would love it. This is, we're working with a wonderful travel agency, Keen Luxury Travel. Let me give you their number real quickly. They'll answer all of your questions. Their number, 800-856-1155. That's Keen Luxury Travel, 800-856-1155. And we got a great group rate. So you are going to save money. It is going to be cheaper to book with us on our oh, for sure. than if you go and book it at any other time. So this is going to be really, really great. We were able to negotiate a terrific rate for all of our listeners. 
if you if you don't call the number, at least go check it out on our website, wgnradiotheater.com, uh, and check out the uh, and check out the cruise banner, and come with us August first. Right, we're right? really excited. We hope you'll join us. You have a spot to read, and then we'll go to break. Drivers, when you take to the roadways, stay off your phone. Arrive alive. Don't text and drive. This message, courtesy of Budrek Truck Lines, serving the area with quality and with pride. Safety is their priority. To join. Join their winning truck team. Call 708-496-0522. That's 708-496-0522. Meet them online at boudreclines.com, boudreclines.com. Don't text and drive. I never do, Lisa. I never text and drive. You know what I do? I just put my phone way away from me when I'm driving. Well, you can put it on Do Not Disturb. There's nothing that can't wait. You know, there's a way now, there's something that you can do that when your phone knows when you're driving. It automatically sends people a message that says, I'm driving. Can you do that with my phone? I sure can. Seriously. Okay, seriously. That'd be great. (laughs) Because... (laughs) I'd be happy to. All right. In the (laughs) next hour, we have the General Electric Theater Random Harvest, starring Ronald and Benita Coleman. That is the very first episode from the General Electric Theater radio series. And after that, Frank Sinatra in Rocky Fortune, and then a good mystery to close things out with the unexpected. Stick around. We'll be back after these words. WGN Radio Theater. It is eight minutes after 1 a.m. We're here till 3 o'clock in the morning. Every single Saturday, we're here from 10 p.m. till 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, playing all your favorite classic radio shows. My favorites are the mysteries and detectives. I love the comedies, too, in the westerns, but... I think uh, you love them all. I do love them all, (laughs) but like Boston Blackie... And suspense. Ooh, Richard Diamond, private detective. Johnny Dollar. I know Mike's favorite's Johnny Dollar. But uh, I also love Gunsmoke. I love Gunsmoke. You know, every time we play Gunsmoke, we have a lot of people who feel the same way as mm-hmm. you do. Abbott and Costello is always fun. Yeah. Jack Benny. Can't really get any better than Jack no, Benny as far as a comedy. Um, but there's the Bickersons and the Whistler and Inner Sanctum Mystery. The other one that I really love is Lights Out. Lights Out, especially, everyone. Especially late at night or early in the yeah. morning when we're here. It's yeah. a great time to to bundle up and turn down the lights and enjoy it. That's right. We uh, we love playing these classic radio shows for you. We have a text in line, 312-981-7200. In this hour, we're going to tune in. 
to the General Electric Theater. It was on television, and it was on radio. And we have the very first radio broadcast of this series for you. And it stars married couple Ronald and Benita Coleman in a radio dramatization of the film Random Harvest, going back to 1953. That's coming your way after these words. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is our Just the Facts segment, uh, sponsored by Cat's Pride. This is Hour 4. We're going to be playing a radio show from 1953, the General Electric Theater. So we'll be talking a little bit about the history of 1953. Now, this is a song we're about to play that became a major hit and signature song for Dean Martin in 1953. Like a big pizza pie, that's some more. <laughs> Who sings better, me or Dean Martin? Let me hear a little more of you. Amore. Hmm. That's a toss-up. When <laughs> the moon hits your eye, well, like a big pizza pie. That's amore. That's amore. You know, yes and no. I, I kind of liken this song to you in a couple of ways. Because of the amore, amare. Well, amore, amare. You're Italian. You love the... You know, you love the pizza pie. I mean, he's comparing the feeling of amore to his favorite Italian foods, mm-hmm. like pizza and pasta fagiole. Love it. So to that end, I kind of compare him. Mm-hmm. The other side of it is, you know, it's kind of romantic. We're talking about amore, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's your thing. I'm not very romantic. No, you're not kind of a amore no. kind of a guy. No. But in any event, <laughs> this song first appeared in the soundtrack of the Martin and Lewis comedy film, The Caddy. That was August 10th of 1953. Their movies were so popular. No, very popular. Not course. only were they hilarious, but they made tons and tons of money. <laughs> that they did. Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. <laughs> it received a nomination for an Academy Award for Best Original Song that year. Yeah. And it's been used in a variety of movies since then, uh, like Rear Window, great movie from the 50s, Moonstruck from the 80s, oh, yeah. uh, Enchanted from 2007, mm-hmm. Bridget Jones's Baby 2016, even much more recent. So a song that has persisted through time, mm-hmm. no doubt. On March 26th of 1953, this is a great story, Carl. Dr. Jonas Salk announces on national radio Mm -hmm. that he has successfully tested a vaccine against polio, polio, right? Mm -hmm. So 1952 was an epidemic year for polio. Mm -hmm. There were 58,000 new cases in the U.S. and more than 3,000 died from the disease. So what he did was he injected himself his wife and his three sons in his kitchen after boiling the needles and syringes on his stovetop. That's how it happened. Right? So your kids should feel lucky. Oh my God. I've never did that to any of my kids. I, I certainly hope not. I think it would be called child abuse at the moment. Uh, so also 1953, yeah. the first colored television sets go on sale. Really? Um, December 30th were of they, 1953. Were they Silco or RCA? They were Admiral or? and oh, Admiral. RCA. Both. Yeah. They both put the first color television up for sale. Okay. And guess how much they cost mm, at that Like time? a console? Talking about like a like a. I guess that's how they probably, all were at yeah, that they were time. Consoles. They, they kind of came in. I'm going to say I'm going to say three hundred 
and fifty dollars. You're very close. Really? It was about one thousand one hundred seventy-five dollars when they first went on sale at Are the beginning. Are you kidding? Yeah, me? but three fifty was fifty-three. Yeah, but that was really a close guess. Um, so at the time, of course, TV was very young. Yeah, only a few years old, and very few homes had televisions. There was barely any color programming to watch, of course, and there wouldn't be any for you know quite a while, maybe a decade. Wow. Yeah. Big right. year. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you, Carl. All right, you ready for the General Electric Theater? Definitely. Kind of an interesting history on this show. It debuted in 1953 and was one of the best dramatic anthologies to air during the waning years of the golden age of radio. I mean, radio was on its way out, as you said. TV was really the newfangled thing. Now, it began as a TV series, with future president Ronald Reagan as the host. Then a few months later, because it was doing well on television, they said, eh, CBS uh, decided, let's also put it on radio. We'll produce a radio series as well. Very few shows ever did that. Most shows started on radio, then made the transition to television. Have Gun, Will Travel was one that started on TV, moved to radio. Same thing here with the General Electric Theater. Now, both the radio and TV versions featured adaptations of novels, short stories, plays, films, and magazine fiction by the top writers in the field. Now, the stars on the radio and TV shows were Ronald Coleman, Cary Grant, Irene Dunn, Van Johnson, Jane Wyman, William Holden. I mean, huge, huge, huge stars. And in order to land Ronald Reagan as host of the TV series, General Electric made him part owner in the series. Made the uh, They really made a sweet deal for him. After eight years as host, Reagan had made a personal fortune in the venture. I mean, this is what made, mm. so how he was able to buy his ranch and everything else. And then, uh, you know, often referred to as the great communicator, Reagan credited his time on this series as helping him develop his public speaking abilities. Of course, he went on to bigger things. I think so. Than uh, hosting the show. <laughs> Over the TV series 10 year run, it was nominated for nine primetime Emmys. So the television show was more popular than yeah. radio. Well, but it started we, a little bit late for radio. I yeah. Think. But we have the very first radio broadcast of the General Electric Theater for you right now, July 9th, 1953, Random Harvest. And this stars Ronald and Benita Coleman, and we'll listen to it uninterrupted. Here is the General Electric Theater. The General Electric Theater, tonight starring Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. This is Ken Carpenter, welcoming you to the General Electric Theater, presented by the makers of famous, dependable kitchen and home laundry appliances, General Electric. Tonight we bring you Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume in James Hilton's story, Random Harvest. Tonight, the General Electric Company is privileged to present a story that's become a favorite with audiences the world over. It was written by one of the best-loved authors of our time, James Hilton. And we're extremely fortunate to be able to bring back Mr. Ronald Coleman in a transcription of the role he made so famous. It is with great pride that we present a special adaptation of Random Harvest, starring Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. 
But first, you who are about to buy a new refrigerator, we salute you with a new General Electric refrigerator food freezer. It's two, that's right, two great appliances in one. At the top, a true zero-degree food freezer with its own door. It operates separately from the refrigerator and has room to store up to 89 packages of frozen foods as long as a year. Below, a big, spacious GE automatic defrost refrigerator with General Electric's famous moist cold. With GE moist cold, you never have to cover leftovers. And there's no defrosting in the refrigerator section of this GE. Absolutely none. No buttons to push, no clocks to set, no pans to empty. Defrosting is completely automatic. You get all these wonderful advantages, plus GE's famous record of dependability. Ask your General Electric dealer how you can own GE's great twin-system refrigerator food freezer for only about $5.46 a week after a small down payment. Now, the first act of Random Harvest, starring Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. I shall never forget the moment. I was conscious of light, cold rain falling on my upturned face. That and a few distant jumbled sounds and a feeling of infinite depression. I felt as though I had just lost something very rare, singularly beautiful. Had lost it and could not for the life of me remember just what it was. And then I opened my eyes. A ring of faces hung over me. Eh, uh, now, he's coming out of it. Gracious, I could have swore he did it. Well, well, well who, who are you? Easy there, sir. There's no bones broke. Well, I, I've a train to catch. I'll be late. Copper's gone to fetch a doctor. Miss Lice still till they've had a look at you. My clothes. They're muddy and torn. Aye, you took a fair spill, you did. Oh, uh, spill? Aye, when the bus hit you. Bounced you off to the side, it did. Lucky for you. Well, I... I'm a little confused, but... Well, I... I'm perfectly all right now. It won't do for me to miss that train. Oh, perhaps I can give you a lift, sir. That's very kind of you. Uh, what station was you headed for? My train leaves from Victoria Station. Victoria? But this is... That's in London. Well, of course it's in London. <laughs> Where else would it be? Oh, Lord, he did have a thunk. Ah. Well, sir, it, sure it wouldn't be here in Liverpool. Liverpool? Aye. The accident must have addled you a bit. But don't you worry about it, mate. You'll straighten out right enough. I stood up feeling dizzy. The queer feeling of depression persisted. And there was this very odd business of where I was. One moment in London, hurrying for the train with bells ringing and horns blowing, all of England celebrating V-Day, and the next moment, lying in the rain among strangers in Liverpool. And, and where was my uniform? I knew my name, Charles Rainier, and I knew my regiment and my address. But this cheap suit, these shoes, what had happened? Paper, sir? Uh, yeah, yes, yes. Thank you, sir. There you are. The Liverpool Guardian. January the 30th, 1948. That's impossible. Uh, boy! Yes, sir? Uh, well, what's the date today? Right there on your paper, sir. The 30th. No, no, no. I mean the year. 1948, of course. Are you 
all right, sir. I... I'm fine. Thank you. Three years gone with the snap of a finger. But where? And how? I headed for the station, home to Sturton and my father and dependable old Sheldon. Sheldon, the butler, he'd raised us all with a firm hand, guided our early lives, and even in later years it was to Sheldon that we went for counsel and advice. I... I can't tell you what a surprise this is, Mr. Charles. I <laughs> thought I was dead, did you? It's been rather a long time, sir. And, well, you know your father. The search for you was most extensive. Uh, three years. Think of it, Sheldon. Three solid years I can't account for. But you're all right now, sir. Oh, I think so. But there's still a family to face. And they're sure to want to know where I've been all this time, especially my father. He's not well, Mr. Charles. Not at all well. Where is he? I'll go to him at once. The old gentleman was saying just the other day, if only you were here to take over the family interests. He said that, did he? I'm afraid I don't much relish the prospect of becoming a businessman. Mr. Charles, I thought it was always understood. Yes, I know. But I've changed, Sheldon. I've changed. It was a bad time for a prodigal's return. My father died that night. And because I could think of no plausible excuse for not doing so, I took over the management of Rainier Limited. Then I spent fruitless months in London with a psychiatrist. Was her face blank, Mr. Rainier? I don't know. It, it, it was just not there. Does this make sense to you, Doctor? Dreams are rarely complete. Now, you dream of this woman. You're going away on a short trip. She stands in the doorway of a house which is your home in the dream. She waves goodbye. You cannot see her face. Yes, and then I go. I keep wanting to turn back. Tell me, do you believe there is such a person? I don't know, Doctor. It will come to you, Mr. Rainier. <laughs> but when? Amnesia is still a great mystery. Sometimes it can be treated with psychoanalysis. Sometimes it simply cures itself. A word here, a hint there, and then, quite suddenly, everything falls into place and you are cured. Mr. Rainier, you are, with the exception of this one period of blankness, an extremely stable, well-adjusted human being. Stable? Well-adjusted? <laughs> I'm nervous as a cat. Don't worry, Mr. Rainier. I'm sure you have committed no great crimes. Well, what about the woman? Forget about her. When your subconscious has decided you should know, it will yield up your secrets. And now, I have one other piece of advice. What's that? Get to work. You have a job with your family's enterprises. Take over. Focus your energies, Mr. Rainier. Perhaps in work, you may find happiness. Oh, I hope you're right. In any event, I'll start in the morning. First step, find a secretary. type and take dictation quite well. My last employer was a writer. You're not a Londoner, are you, Miss Hanson? Yes, yes, I am. And you read the provincial papers? Oh, it's a habit I got into. I used to travel about the country a great deal. Ah, that's how you knew about me. Oh, about your sudden return from the dead? Yes, I read all about it. 
but really you shouldn't have let them print such an unflattering picture of you. <laughs> thank you, but uh, I was going to say there's more to this story of my absence than the papers printed. If you take this job as my secretary, you'll have to know about it. Then you think I might do? If you don't mind playing nursemaid to a mind that's not quite all there. Oh, I... I don't mind at all, Mr. Rainier. I don't know what I should have done without her. When I fell into those black, desperate moods of depression, trying to remember, just talking with her for a while would calm me, give me peace. Cynthia was clever, too. Too clever to stay a secretary the rest of her life. She deserved more than this, and I wanted her to have more. But I didn't want to lose her. And then, quite suddenly one day, an idea came to me. We were sitting at lunch in a little restaurant. Yes, a special paragraph the... about you, Charles. Charles Rainier, the new member of Parliament for Five Oaks, takes over the seat left vacant by the death of his father. Young Rainier's qualities of leadership are expected to carry him swiftly to the forefront of our national politics. <laughs> Who wrote that rubbish? Rubbish? But Charles, it's true. Aren't you excited? Who knows? You may even become Prime Minister one day. I don't want to be Prime Minister one day. A political career me means... Cynthia. Yes, Charles? You once told me you'd never marry for love. What did you mean by that? Why, simply that once I was so very much in love with a man that there'll never be any other for me. That's all. And that's all done with? Dead and buried? I'm afraid so. But if there were a marriage you could make without love, based on mutual respect, a kind of working partnership, would you consider it? I might. I I'd never ask anything of you. It's just that, <laughs> well, we're, we're rather in the same boat. And we make such a good working team. And now with this Parliament thing... Oh, you need someone to play hostess for all the parties you'll have to give and someone to entertain important wives at tea and... Oh, don't misunderstand me. I know how important these things are. It just seems so very strange that you've chosen me. Oh, believe me, Cynthia. If it weren't for those things in your past and mine, if it weren't for this terrible racking doubt in the back of my mind about those last years... Yes, if you married for love and suddenly awoke one morning to remember you were really in love with someone else, it would be rather embarrassing, wouldn't it? Well, now you're making fun of me. No, I'm not, Charles. I'm... I'm just trying to keep from crying. Oh, I've hurt you. I'm terribly sorry. I'm happy, Charles. Really, I am. I... I'd be delighted to marry you. No one ever suspected it was a marriage of convenience that Cynthia had once loved and lost and could never love again or that I was only half a person whose real love lay buried in the darkness of forgotten years. The memory of those years returned with tantalizing half-glimpses, a word here, a conversation there, painfully retrieved from the shadows, a random harvest. And then one night we attended a concert. And as I glanced through the program notes, which included the usual laudatory quotes from small-town critics, 
A single word flew at me. Melbury. Melbury. I... I'd never been there. That is, in this consciousness. But I knew it. Knew the town. That was it. Melbury. What's wrong, dear? Cynthia. Uh, do you mind very much sitting this out alone? I've just remembered something. I must attend to it. I'll come with you. No, 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 no. You stay here. I'd better handle this alone. Will, will you be late? I... I don't know. You'd better not wait up. All right, Charles. I walked up the aisle of the auditorium feeling tense, apprehensive, and yet almost ecstatically happy. I felt like a child tiptoeing down the stairs on Christmas morning. Outside, I hailed a cab, and it was just after one in the morning that I reached the market square of Melbury. Um, pull up here, driver. Right, Governor. There you are. Keep the change. Thank you, sir. Good night. Good night. I looked about the little square. I somehow knew the place. The chemists, the greengrocer, the little stationery shop. But that wasn't what I'd come to Melbury for. Excuse me, uh, officer. Yes, sir? You looking for somewhere? Yes, the, uh, the hospital. Where is the hospital? You mean the new one or the old one, sir? Well, the old one, I expect. It's on a hill. There's big gates and a high wall around it. Ah, that doesn't sound much like either of them, sir. I wonder if you mightn't be thinking of the insane asylum. stars, Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume, we bring you the second act of Random Harvest. The Insane Asylum. As the policeman in Melbury said those words, suddenly, vividly, I began to remember what had happened there three years ago. And as I remembered, I began to relive those first dark moments. I was running. It wasn't night anymore. It was day, a cold, rainy day, and I had no overcoat. I was running out through the tall iron gates of the asylum. And there was a bicycle. Yeah, yeah, come back. I, I, I fled down the long black road, shining in the rain. Just outside the village, I left the bicycle, and trying desperately to look casual, walked down a narrow block and into the square. There, not 20 feet away, was the broad back of a policeman. There was a shop at my elbow. I ducked in. I tell you, this flu's awful. Everybody in the cast has oh, got... excuse me, dearie, while I wait on this man. Yeah, of course, of course. What can I do for you, sir? Uh, well, oh, I, I... I'd like some... Uh, cigarettes, please. Yes, sir. What kind? I... I, I don't remember. Don't remember? Uh, oh, uh... uh Gold flakes, please. Oh, <coughs> yes. I I might have some of them in the back room. I, I won't be a minute. You wait here. She's gone to fetch somebody. She knows where you're from. The army hospital, huh? What's that? You're an escaped patient, aren't you? <coughs> I, I'm all right. 
Really? Oh, you don't look very well. I... Look, you can walk out of here with me if you like. With you? But yes, they won't be looking for a soldier with a woman. That's very kind of you. Well, come along then. Hurry. I fe- feel sort of dizzy. You will lean on me if you like. Th- there's nothing wrong with me. J- just a stammer. <laughs> not, not being able to remember things. Well, I didn't think you looked dangerous. Have you got any plans? Uh, no. <coughs> no. Oh, I don't like that cough, old boy. You're not coming down with the flu, are you? I, I don't think so. I just, just, just this cough and... A little weak in the knees. Well, you'd better get out of this rain. Here, why don't you come over to the hotel and dry yourself out? I, I, I don't want to get you in trouble. Oh, you won't. By the way, what's your name? That, that's one of the things I don't remember. Oh, well, there's always Smith. Smithy, how do you feel now? Rather knocked out. How did I get here? Oh, you've had the flu. You were delirious most of the time. What's this place? It's a hotel. I live here, too. I suppose I really should go back to the hospital. Oh, is that what you want to do? No, but I can't hide out here. I haven't any money, and it isn't fair to you. Oh, now stop that, Smithy. It's not costing a penny. The theater's been closed by the epidemic, so I haven't a thing else to do but play nurse to you. You're an actress? Yes. Is that all right? Oh, why, of course. I, I I like the theater, I think. Well, that's good, because I think I may be able to get you a job with the company as soon as you're well enough to work. Oh, but I'm no actor. I'm sure of that much. Well, there are other jobs in the theater besides acting. Why? Why are you taking all this trouble over me? Why, Smithy, don't you know? It's because I've fallen for you, hook, line, and sinker. When I was on my feet again, I took the job that was offered. It was the only way to pay back what I owed her. I fully intended to return to the hospital when that had been done. But with each passing day, I realized more certainly that I no longer wanted to regain my memory. She had fallen for Smith. I wanted to go on being Smith because I had fallen for her. I no longer cared what might be hidden in my past. I lived for the present and for the future with her. But, Smithy, they're bound to ask a lot of questions at the registry office. What sort of questions? Well, they might ask the one question I've been afraid to ask. And what's that, darling? Have you ever been married before? No. But how can you be sure... Yes, that's right. How can I? Uh, Paula, I love you. Will you marry me? Yes, Smithy. Yes. And so we were married at St. Clement's Church. For our honeymoon, we went to Sussex and took a cottage. And there, in the peace of that quiet, beautiful countryside, I made a discovery. I could write. I wrote our story. 
But it wasn't just a story of a man who had forgotten his past. I tried to make it the story of a whole world emerging from the dark shadow of the war and building a new life for itself. And when I had finished it, I sent it to a publisher. Listen, Smithy, listen to this. I've just finished reading your manuscript. I find it fresh, inviting, and very readable. <laughs> Would you find it convenient to run down here to Liverpool on Wednesday next? Would I find it convenient? Oh, darling, I wish I could go with you. <laughs> but of course you're going with me. No, no, Smithy, we must be practical. We haven't much money left, you know. Oh, I'll hit the chap for an advance. No, Smithy, I think I'd better wait here. Well, you know, we might decide to simply stay in London or something, and I want us to live here, in this cottage. Oh, we've been so happy. This cottage, our cottage. Here's where my life began with you, and where my future goes on with you. There's nothing else, Paula. Oh, darling, darling. Forgive me for saying so, I hope you never remember. So do I, Paula. I love you so much. I love you too, Timothy. You'll hurry back to me, won't you, darling? You'll hardly notice I've been away. And then I was walking down the path and through the little gate. And I turn. I can see it so clearly. She waves and I want to turn back. But I cannot see her face. Good morning, Sheldon. Mrs. Rainier down yet? Yes, Mr. Charles. She's in the breakfast room. Oh, you're back, Charles. Is everything all right? I found out there was another woman. Have you seen her? No. No, I haven't. Were you married to her? Yes, I was. Oh, that is, I guess I am. You're still in love with her? Cynthia, I hate doing this to you, but you must see that I... How will you find her? I'll start with Mrs. Denvers. We, we rented the cottage from her. Mrs. Denvers. I can't explain everything, Mrs. Denvers. It's too long a story, but uh, you must tell me. What happened after I went to Liverpool that day? Well, your wife stayed on in the cottage for a few weeks. And then one day she left quite suddenly. It was after reading something in the newspaper. There was an ad for a secretary and she decided to go and apply for it. She never came back? No, sir, she never came back. The cottage has stood empty ever since. Hmm. Mrs. Denver's... Yes, Mr. Smith. Might I have the key to the cottage? I'd like to go in and look at it again. But it isn't locked, Mr. Smith. Here, cut across my garden. It's only a few steps that way. Thank you, Mrs. Denver. I always knew you'd come back, Mr. Smith. Hello, Smithy. could I have been so blind? Why didn't you tell me? It had to come this way, Smith. Naturally. Of its own. And in its own time. 
Oh, it's been so long. And yet we've not been apart. My darling Paula. Remember... <laughs> remember what I said when I left here for Liverpool that day? What was that, darling? You'll never notice I've been away. Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume will be back in just a moment. Where is the woman who used to slave over a hot stove all day? Why, she's keeping cool while her dinner is cooked automatically on a handsome new General Electric Speedster range. That's right, you don't have to stay in the kitchen while cooking oven meals because the automatic oven timer watches over dinner while the dinner cooks itself. And if you do stay in the kitchen, using both the oven and those fast Calrod surface units, your kitchen can be 8 to 16 degrees cooler than if you were cooking with a flame. Cooking is so easy with a GE Speedster, too. It has GE push-button controls, telecook lights that tell at a glance just what's cooking, fast heating, easy-to-clean GE Calrod units, and GE's great new Speedster range has a giant-sized triple oven, large enough to hold a party-sized ham or turkey, with plenty of room left for other foods on the second shelf. See your GE dealer tomorrow about a cool-cooking General Electric Speedster range. You can own one for about $4.09 a week, after a small down payment. And now our stars, Ronald Coleman and Bonita Hume. Well, I'd like to say, Ken, that General Electric appliances certainly help make our home life more pleasant. And I'm sure that Ronnie will agree with me. I do indeed. But you know, Ken, that our being here tonight is something rather special. Oh, for the three of us, you mean? Yes. This is the first time we've worked together since our Halls of Ivy days. Yeah, and I, for one, have missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I have too, Benita. And thank you both for being with us tonight. Thank you. Good night, Good night. everybody. General Electric Theater has brought you Random Harvest, starring Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. Featured in tonight's cast were Ben Wright, Tudor Owen, Ellen Morgan, Gloria Gordon, Edgar Barrier, and Christopher Cook. Random Harvest was written by James Hilton and adapted for radio by James Poe and Robert Tallman with music by Wilbur Hatch. General Electric Theater was transcribed in Hollywood by Jaime Del Valle. <laughs> This is Ken Carpenter inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when General Electric, makers of famous, dependable kitchen and home laundry appliances, will bring you Cary Grant in a rollicking comedy, The Bachelor, on the General Electric Theater. America now listens to 110 million radio sets and listens most to the CBS Radio Network. That was good, right? Random Harvest, a radio reenactment of the uh, of the movie. Ronald Coleman, Benita Hume, they were Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. 
and a great cast. Uh, Ken Carpenter doing the announcing there. The music was by someone who did tons and tons of music on these radio shows, Wilbur Hatch. And you know when he took a drink? It went down the hatch. That's right. I just figured that. It would always be down the hatch. July 9th, 1953, the General Electric Theater, the very first episode in the series. And they were talking about how that's the first time the three of them, Ken Carpenter and Ronald and Benita Coleman, had worked together since their Halls of Ivy days. We play Halls of yeah, Ivies here. Definitely. Uh, Halls of Ivy radio shows here. And Ken Carpenter was the announcer on that on that radio show as well. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. There's five classic radio shows, Lisa, waiting for people. And, uh, folks, that means you. Everyone listening to this radio show is entitled to five free classic radio shows at our website, 100radioshows.com. Now, we've set up this uh, website, so uh, we, we can thank you for listening to this show. Five shows, Suspense, Jack Benny, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Fibber McGee and Molly, and Gunsmoke. Huh? You got it. Off the top of my head, Lisa. I know. I was watching your eyes kind of searching for that. I'm like, what are the shows again? <laughs> but um, we purposely took these uh, five shows right from the master recordings. Mike digitally remastered them. They sound amazing. And when you go to 100radioshows.com, 100radioshows.com, when you go there, at the very top of the website, it says, put your email address. You just put your email in there and hit send. And then within like a minute, 
even less, seconds, you will get an email from us. If you don't get an email from us, then it ended up in your spam folder, so go there. But it'll be an email to you with five classic radio show links. And those links never expire. You can Bluetooth them to your car you can, or to your radio, whatever you want to do. And you can listen to those five classic radio shows. Now, there's also something else at that website. There are seven collections, and soon there will be eight, Lisa. I'm working on an entire sci-fi collection. I didn't tell you about this. No, so we're going to have, what, 800? Yeah, so there's seven collections at the website. Each one of these collections has 100 radio shows, all digitally remastered. And there's a Christmas one, all Christmas shows. There's a Greatest Shows. There's a drama, all dramas. There's an all-Western, an all-mystery, and an all-detective. And, and a comedy. A comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Can't forget comedy. that. No. And um, these these collections, as I said, have 100 shows, about 50 hours of material. Now, if you want to purchase any of those, you can, but make sure that you use the promo code radio at checkout. Now, when you go to checkout and you're you know, ordering these, put the promo code radio in there and you'll, you'll, you will save 70%. So this is a great way to build your library. There's 700 shows there, all digitally remastered, all sound amazing. And you can buy them at a very, very low price because 70% off by using the promo code radio. That's our other way of thanking you for listening to this show. Right. Right. So either way, check out the website, take the five free shows, enjoy them. And if you'd like to purchase more, that's wonderful. And if you don't, you're still and we hope that you'll enjoy those five shows. Yeah. Get the five shows at least. Check it all out. You know, um, uh, these are all digital downloads. And then there are still people that like the CDs. Right. Well, these the ones at 100 radio shows dot com. They're not on CD. It's all digital downloads. But if you are someone who wants to order CDs of classic radio shows, go to our other website, which is ClassicRadioClub.com. Now, at the ClassicRadioClub.com website, you can order 10 shows. You know, you'll get 10 shows every month, either on CD, because a lot of people still like CDs, Lisa, or digital downloads. Yeah, so check that out, too. There's two ways you can build your library of classic radio shows. And the great thing about the club is you'll get 10 shows sent to you each month that I handpick from our library of over 100,000 shows. Plus, I write liner notes for these shows, very detailed liner notes. Well, you can get the liner notes whether you get the CD or the digital download. Right. Either way, you'll get a little bit of the history of each show and yeah. learn about that. And either way, you'll still get 10 great classic radio shows sent to you every single month. Yeah, it's a great way. It's a great way to get the best of the best because I'm always putting like really special shows in there. And like uh, just recently, I, I found an episode of um, Martin and Lewis that had, you know, Lucille Ball on it. And it was like 45 minutes long and not not the not 30 because they went you know did a special presentation because lucille ball was on you know stuff like right. that so it's always, such a different side of lucille ball than you oh, would normally yeah. see on you know my favorite husband yeah but anyway classic radio club.com or 100 radio shows.com in our next hour frank sinatra stars as rocco fortunato in rocky fortune from 1953 and then we'll tune into a little mystery called the unexpected 